Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take two random films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. Now, just to remind you guys, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, we do discuss films pretty closely here, and so there's just no way for us to do that without spoilers. This program does have spoilers, so if you haven't seen the films yet, feel free to go ahead and stop this right now, check them out, come back, hang out with us. We will guide you through the movies as well, so if you haven't seen them and you still want to listen, uh, we should be able to give you a pretty good idea of what the films are about. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get to the show. I'm Jason Peters, and with me today is my co-host and good buddy, the man People Magazine once described as linguistically effervescent, Mr. Ryan Siebold. Hey, what's up, buddy? I feel like a Sprite. Effervescent always reminds me of Sprite, or maybe Lacroix. <laughs> Would it, I'd, be, I'd probably, I'm probably more of a Lacroix than a Sprite. Let's be honest. <laughs> Either way, it's good to have you around. Um, we got uh, some, uh, so some interesting films here this week, man. And uh, I know you and I kind of had similar responses to both of them, and they were, uh, spoiler alert, not so great. Why don't you give us a little bit of a breakdown on uh, what we got coming up here? Well, we got two films. We got one from uh, 1972 by uh, Andrei Tarkovsky named Solaris, which is a sci-fi classic, or so it was supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> we also got a Bergman film, um, yeah, Ingmar Bergman film, Wild Strawberries from 1957. Uh, man, there's nothing, uh, nothing wild or strawberry about this film. Uh, we're going to get into that in just a bit. Let's go ahead and start with Solaris, though. Uh, the uh, sci-fi... Uh, it's not a thriller. It's just more of a mental headpiece. I don't know. Yeah. Um, this from the guy that said 2001, a space odyssey was too sterile. So I know, right. I guess he just wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this guy, he, uh, he really just wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of the, look, I, I loved wh- what he was trying to do. I loved what the film was trying to be. Um, and I think a lot of films now that you and I really enjoy exist because this film was made. Sure. So I understand its part in history. I'm not going to beat it up too much uh, like the lives of others or <laughs> stay tuned for Wild Strawberries because that's going to be a winner. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, Solaris, let's just get right into it if that's okay. The uh, IMDb's uh, Dan Ellis uh, writes that Solaris, the Solaris mission has established a base on a planet that appears to host some kind of intelligence, but the details are hazy and very secret after after the mysterious demise of one of the three scientists of the base, uh, the main character is sent out to replace him. Uh, he finds the station run down and the two remaining scientists cold and secretive. When he also encounters his wife, who has been dead for 10 years, he begins to appreciate the baffling nature of the in- alien intelligence. Uh, what the synopsis does not tell you as well is that our main character is a, uh, was a psychiatrist, psychologist, mm-hmm. who's been sent up there to find out why these guys, uh, these um, astronauts keep going crazy. So something's happening and these guys are going bonkers. Uh, We kind of find out right out the gate uh, that one of the people that was up there, you know, kind of has some stories to tell on things that he had seen. Seen some things, man. Not good. (laughs) And so uh, and so they decide to send a a psychiatrist up there to kind of figure it the F out. And that's, uh, again, according to Dan Ellis from IMDb. Thank you for the uh, letting us borrow your little breakdown. Jason, what'd you think? 
Yeah, so before we get into it, let's go ahead and uh, we do have a trailer. It's the English language trailer. I'm just going to play it and then we're going to address it after the fact because it does need to be acknowledged. Here is the English language trailer for the Russian film Solaris. At precisely 1900 hours, I entered the cabin of the spacecraft and settle back for liftoff. Ready, Kelvin? Ready. Good luck. Donatas Banyonis. Vladislav Vorjetsky. Natalia Bondarchuk. Play the leading roles in Solaris. The scene is somewhere in the cosmos. The time, the distant future. The place, a planet yet unknown to us. Based on the novel by Stanislav Lem. Chris, I'm not Carrie! I don't care. <laughs> Carrie doesn't exist. She is dead. Accept it, Kelvin, or you are lost. Let us take you with us to Solaris, planet of mystery, embodiment of man's latent conflict with the unknown. Man, face to face with his conscience and with his past. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, who gave us the classic film Andrei Rublev. A studio must film production. Okay, so Ryan, like having seen that film, the nature of this trailer is just couldn't be further from the movie that you get because this film is presented. Yeah, that's not in the movie trailer. I watched. Yeah, this film makes you think that you're gonna watch some like <laughs> 1950s genre sci-fi film with like that's really exciting yeah. and follows all the tropes and it's it's a quiet, meditative think piece, very slow. It's not the film that you just heard at all, so but that's the literally the only English trailer that we could find online that was available to us. So that's what we've got for you. Let's go ahead and let's start as we always do at the beginning. So this film actually opens with a really really lovely shot, and if there's one thing that we can go ahead and acknowledge right out of the gate, it's that this is a very gorgeously shot film. I feel like that's kind of the yes, one constant is. in light of, you know, we haven't really liked a lot of the last few films that we've reviewed on this program, unfortunately, but everything has been pretty gorgeously shot. And so this is no exception to that. Uh, we get that nice opening it's well shot. shot. The set pieces are great. The locations are fantastic. They, they took us to some cool spots. I mean, uh, yeah, zero complaints visually on this movie. Um uh, I, I wish there was a little, little more to deal with, uh, you know, meat on the bones as far as to keep me a little more excited uh, for being a sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, like you said earlier, it is more of a think piece, but visually it's great. Uh, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, there's a reason why I interrupted you, and that yeah. is because uh, I want to take it back even further. Uh, the movie opens um, with some Russian titles. Yes. Uh, lets you know that it's Solaris. And, uh, and then it says part one. And anytime a movie starts with part one, you know it's going to be a haul. <laughs> like, uh, okay, 
you're, you're giving this to me in doses. This is a all, you know two and a half hour, three hour movie, and uh, yeah, it's letting me know part one, and and then what it does is it sets you up to expect a part two or a part three, and when an hour or so goes by and you haven't seen it, you're like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man and look i mean look but it's not that we necessarily we're not opposed to long movies but it's like if you're gonna take our time like make it enjoyable right i mean quentin tarantino for these days can't make a movie less than two and a half hours but they're always enjoyable right so i think right. we've just kind of you know maybe hit on some pieces that weren't so great um wild strawberries at least was short this one is not short, but I do think that it has more to offer than Wild Strawberries. Um, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is not a terrible movie. I see why not, it exists. I, I do see why people like it. Um, I think uh, I and this is really unfortunate, but I, I really do think that I enjoyed it less because of the movies that it's sandwiched in between that I've been watching with you uh, throughout this podcast. Like if this had just come up. You know, in between like a return to Oz and Secret and Niv, you know, the Willow, something a little more like genre based or where more is happening, where's more mm-hmm. of a musical score. Uh, I think I would have really loved this. Mo- well, loved is a strong <laughs> word. I would have enjoyed this movie more. Uh, but because I got the, you know, thrown into a couple of uh, pieces of week old rye bread, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like it was just a shit sandwich and I, I really didn't enjoy the, you know, you could put anything in there and, uh, you know, yeah. So that's well, my let's... take on it. Yeah, and I and, and and that's fair, man. And you know, look, it's just been the roll of the dice, right? You, we, that's part of the it's part of the way this program works. We never know what we're gonna get. Sure, sure. And it's part right. of the excitement. At least but, we're getting them know. all out early. <laughs> At least we're getting them all out early, man. We're gonna be left with some humdingers for episode twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> episode twenty three, we're coming at you. <laughs> so anyway, so let's let's get back to the film here. So right, so early on, as you know, most of the films that we've seen on this program tend to do it kind of lets you know early on what it is we get that slow place uh slow pace rather we get the nice cinematography you know we uh, even the opening shot i wasn't quite sure until you know a couple minutes pass and it's revealed to us whether it was supposed to be earth or an alien planet and i think that was kind of the point because we get this really lovely yep. gorgeous you know water rushing through and then there's like the whether it's algae or some sort of plant life that's flowing underneath and the water is perfectly clear and we see it underneath and then it kind of you know tilts back a little bit and then we see this moss and so it's one of those things where it's like okay it could be earth it could not it does end up being earth and then it ends up being a contrast to the sort of sterile nature of the Solaris space station itself. Um, The other thing that Tarkovsky does is he introduces fog right off the bat. So after that initial reveal of Kelvin, we get a shot where he's walking across a field. I think it's kind of even like a fish fish eye lensy shot or something like that, wide lens. Um, And we see a lot of fog around his environment. And fog is going to play an important visual element and theme in this movie because fog represents uh, most often Solaris. Uh, Solaris is also represented as a body of water, but it's basically the oceans and it's the surrounding fog and clouds and Solaris itself as a planet is arguably presented as a sentient being in and of itself. And the pilot Burton, who we'll meet in a moment, uh, goes so far as to suggest that early on. But uh, the other thing that Tarkovsky establishes very early on is... He's going to use long takes, and this is what surprised me most about this film, Ryan, is because my, my understanding, just based on Tarkovsky's reputation without having seen any before, was this your first Tarkovsky film as well, by the way? It was. 
Yeah, mine too, mine too. So I understand he could do like really long takes. And this film had a lot of long takes, but there was a ton of camera movement. And I think that ties into a lot of the gorgeous photography. But um, right, it was it was a lot more visually dynamic than I expected it to be. There was a lot of tracking and panning and tilting. And of course, because, because this is a 70s movie, a shit ton of zooming as well, right? Because they... Goddamn, they love themselves some Zoom in the seventies. <laughs> you know, you know what? Um, uh, you you would think that this would have made me appreciate it more, but it actually uh, kind of took me out of it. This is a very quiet movie. Yes. Uh, did you get that as well? There's oh, not a lot of music. Absolutely. There's not a big score. It's very very silent. Um, you're kind of in the vacuum of space for most of it on this spaceship. Uh, once you leave Earth, it kind of opens with some serene music, I believe, and then it kind of goes into a very. I'm sure we're gonna get into this. A uh, a crazy bananas freeway sequence. And then right after you leave and you get up to space, the whole movie is pretty quiet from there, which yeah. uh, do you think this is a, actually a question I had for you. Do you think that made you appreciate the visuals and the camera work more or less? So do you think it would have been more dynamic if it had music and a, and a dramatic score pushing no. it forward and adding to those elements and like, or do you think that just being in the vacuum of space and seeing the visuals made you appreciate that more? Yeah, and you no, think that was I, his intention. Yeah, I know. I, I definitely prefer the latter. Look, this the entire first half of this movie where it's just kind of slow and meditative and visually based and a lot of these high level concepts, I loved it. Like if you were going to ask me to give me get to give you like a, a a star rating on part 1, I'd probably be in the 4 to 4 and a half range. But it's the second half and the focus on the wife and her psychic projection. And we'll get all of that in a little bit. That's what kills this movie for me. I like all of these high level sure. concepts. I love the, you know, roughly what, 10, 15 minutes that it takes for the pilot Burton and the archival footage of his Senate hearing or whatever it was where he's talking to the government and he's describing everything that he saw when he went to the planet of Solaris. And he talks about how he sort of yep. got – he disappeared into this fog. And then when he came out, there was a giant 13-foot-tall child that was in the middle of the clouds that was naked and wet as a newborn – pulsing and breathing and then i think it ended up being like somebody else's son that he went to visit later and just the the yeah. the way that and it's really interesting because usually in storytelling and especially with movies you know there's this big emphasis on show don't tell i thought that whether it was for budgetary reasons or not i'd have to imagine both budgetary and technological reasons they have burton just describe his experience in the clouds and it's he and it's really effective like I don't know. Did you? I agree. Yeah. I, I like I was able to very clearly imagine what he was talking about. And I think it was more effective than if they had just done the visuals. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it was like a, he um, that that's that whole intro sets up the whole rest of the movie and then they just let you go. Uh, <laughs> they take you to space and the bit. But uh, the, the whole intro, I mean, what do you say? It's probably 10 minutes, eight to 10 minutes, maybe yeah. a little bit more. Um, but, uh, Burton comes in and he, uh, shows a video cassette or a reel to reel of his military briefing, talking to his superior officers. Uh, they're uh, doing a review more or less that they should continue this Solaris project. And, uh, it's my understanding that they're trying to estimate if these astronauts are going crazy or if there's wild stuff they need to find out or like what's really happening. And if they're going crazy, let's just pull our plug and come home. And if they're, uh, if there's real shit that, that's going on there, well, let's, by all means, dig into some real shit. And 
bomb it with radiation because hey, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> yay, humans. So uh, yeah, I, um, I I found it to be very effective. It was like uh, listening to a Coheed and Cambria album or something, where <laughs> they took us on this cool little anime journey of naked babies coming out of fog, and I was like, whoa, what the fuck, and cyborgs. But I was all in for it, and uh, and. Quite frankly, uh, there was a part of me that as much as I was glad they told and not showed in the beginning, I was kind of hoping for a little more show in the back end. Yeah. Uh, man, bring on them naked babies. I want to see the <laughs> naked babies. We have, you, you <laughs> realize we have that on, on, on audio recording now, right? You saying bring on those yeah, naked that's gonna babies. Be, Your presidential bid is that's over, That's fantastic. Buddy. Yeah, <laughs> out of context. Man, I was still going to run for president. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll have to we'll, we'll have to cut out this moment and then just use that as like a Twitter promo on this week's episode or something. Just see what kind yeah, of action absolutely. it gets. <laughs> and so, a surprise twist: I'm going to get suicided in jail. It's going to suck. <laughs> so, anyways, man. So the other thing that uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting about this film that Tarkovsky kind of introduces early on is the nature of the cinematography relative. Not just being gorgeously shot, but also he has almost like multiple different, different, different styles of black and white. Like he had black and white that was like traditional gray, but then there was a black and white that was like almost purple. And then there was another one that was like almost yellow. And I don't know if there was, I was hoping there would be some sort of, you know, it's like a puzzle and, oh, you know, when it's this color, it means this. And when it's yellow, it means that. But I, it I also, cheated. I figured it out. What you want me it? to break this uh, here's code the thing. for to you? To me, I was, I was thinking maybe it was just some visual masturbation where he just was like, oh, this is cool. Let's do it. But yeah, man, unlock the code for me. I want to hear it. All right. So I, I cheated. I looked it up. And ah. uh, as you can imagine, this being a sci-fi classic, there are dissertations written on this shit and uh, probably unnecessary uh, to write something about this. Uh, but and yet here we are covering it on our fucking podcast. So I, I digress. <laughs> um, but the more so, supposedly from what I could dig up, the more saturated the shot, the more rea- in reality you are. And so the black and white represents memory, uh, represents past. It represents longing and uh, and looking backwards. And the more saturated you get, the more into the now and reality you are. So uh, uh, when we start out and it's hyper saturated we're home uh with uh the doctor and burton and the whole bit with his kid and the and ever and all of that and then we all of a sudden go into a black and white kind of bluish uh tone on a freeway scene that uh, <laughs> takes us kind of uh, propels us into space because the next edit is to uh you know you're on the the little shuttle uh, or or pod, if you will, that's being that's docking in the spaceship over yeah. Solaris mm-hmm. uh, with our doctor, Kelvin. So uh, and then we're in the spaceship and it's kind of a um, a desaturated but color. It's still color, but it's not quite as hyper saturated as home was with all those beautiful, vibrant leaves like you were talking about in the opening of the show and the water and all of the beauty uh, that home provided. Um, and then there are moments when uh, he first starts to kind of lose uh, his grip on reality, along with the other astronauts, where we go back to that black and white. And it's almost like stark black and white. And that's when he's mm-hmm. remembering his wife. And then slowly but surely we go through that blue phase again into color. And then uh, that's bringing her into reality. So it's his memory of her that's slowly transitioning. And then from there on out. Uh, we're meant to use those as signifiers of where we are at, whether we're in uh, some kind of memory or some kind of uh, 
reality. And uh, Solaris itself is some kind of uh, amalgamation of all of that. So sometimes they show it in like a uh, stark yellow, but kind of like a black and white yellow. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of to denote uh, the confusing nature of the planet itself and how it's using memories to propel reality. Um, that's what I took out of it. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. You brought up something that I kind of want to touch on, which is the highway scene. Now, I at first I was thinking that maybe this scene was some sort of key to, again, the clue, much the way that we were just talking about with the various black and white and saturation, etc. But after we did a little bit of research, we found out that that wasn't the case. So it, it's it stands out just how long this highway scene is. Burton's basically being driven in a self-driving car that's a little clunkily shot, but, you know, we're willing to forgive that because of technology and blah, blah, blah. But it's certainly not Star Wars. They just kind of throw the corner of the steering wheel in the frame and we're meant to use our imagination. But it takes like, I don't know, seven minutes it's just like seven minutes of them driving on this like highway with just some shots of yeah, the road. Yeah, it was unnaturally long. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 at first it was like, oh, okay, it's kind of cool. There's some interesting architecture. Maybe they're using this for the visuals, and it was just it stood out as being so long that I was like, okay, there has to be something here. And Ryan, you actually looked it up, and why don't you tell everyone what the prevailing theory is? Well, the, the prevailing theory that I found uh, by just scouring some websites online about this is that it was very hard to get travel passports into um, uh, Asia and Japan. So yeah, he found a way to uh, get this as a write-off more or less. So he could go to Japan and he's like, no, I'm filming. It's cool. And he filmed all this stuff. He's like, well, it actually does look cool. So that's the, that's our, our scene uh, that Burton, Henri Burton, who is the uh, pilot that showed his reel to reel footage of his uh, testimony, to the military council and the in the beginning of the film to yeah. get the psychiatrist to agree to go up to space and, and analyze these people. He's like, look, I, I saw some shit up there. You need to go up there and tell them they're not crazy. You need to analyze them and, and so we can continue this investigation. Uh, so Burton is our military guy that was trying to convince our psychiatrist guy, Kelvin, Dr. Kelvin, uh, to go to space. On his way back to the city, we see the seven minute. Uh, and this is um, this scene is one of the few that I found to be. Um, uh, the, the sound design was very dynamic, uh, all kinds of uh, chaos happening. And it was almost like a, a Koyana Scotsy vibe to the visuals. Um, bit of a space mountain feel as you're going in and out of tunnels and the lights on the ceiling with the jarring audio and the rattling of the, the metal and all of that. It felt kind of like I was on Space Mountain a bit yeah. uh, at Disney World. <laughs> Dude, it was um, super cool the first but, three minutes, and then it just kept going. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, right. And so, and and, yeah. and to to fill in people though, you mentioned Japan. Uh, that scene was actually shot in Japan. That's why 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 Brian brings that up. And the sort of prevailing theory is basically that to justify the cost of taking the entire crew to Japan, uh, they ended up leaving in like seven minutes of this footage that they had shot. But even if that was the so first of all, that's super lame, dude. Like how many how many million dollar set pieces have been outright cut from films because there wasn't enough room for them or they just didn't work like that's bullshit. I don't I don't buy that. Oh, well, we spent the money, so we have to put it in there. That's a bunch of crap. First and foremost. Secondly, why not include if that's the case? Why not include more of the nighttime shots? Because it does this like of those seven minutes, like six and a half to six forty five is, you know, in this sort of 
off color black and white and just and then all of a sudden at the end you get these like three or four quick stacked edits where all of a sudden it's nighttime and traffic builds up and like again there's four or five cuts in the matter of like 10 or 15 seconds and those were interesting visuals i thought the city at night looked no, super right. cool why not at least yeah. split the difference and kind of go half and half if you have to put that much footage in to justify it otherwise it's just you know again like i the justification for having the scene be that long eluded me and it sticks out it's egregiously long i agree yeah i'm so. not gonna fight you on this <laughs> um i thought the uh yeah I mean, yeah, it, it is what it is. I yeah. do see the point of having it in the film. I liked it as a transportation piece sure. or a, a uh, an, an analogy, if you will, or metaphor for leaving home, leaving the comforts, going into chaos, going into the vacuum of space, the tunnels and stuff kind of felt kind of space age, the way they shot it. You're desaturating your shots, and so now you're in that cold blue, uh, black and white that you mentioned earlier. That I think this is the first time they did that uh, outside of the... Um, the footage of the hearing in front of uh, Burton and the military council. Um, so uh, at first, when you're watching that footage, it, it appears that they're showing black and white because that's, it was shot on black and white film and it was meant to be kind of archived. He's mm -hmm. obviously like 20 years younger in the film Burton is so, but then all of a sudden now we're in the car and we're driving through the city uh, and we're in that same motif. And so it was a kind of jarring, but it was probably meant to be, and it was letting you know what the fuck was going on, you know, like, hey, this is the deal. We're changing colors now. Huh? So bear with me. And <laughs> then we end up in space. And yeah. uh, now we're with uh, our doctor, uh, Chris Kelvin, and we're in a pod. It's a you know pretty nice little cut into the pod docking. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm here. And there's no answer. He's like, no, really, guys, a uh, <laughs> little help, please. And there's no answer. So he's like, shit. And he's got to, like, let himself out and do the dock. And then all of a sudden now we're on the spaceship, right? Yeah, correct. And, you know, initially, like you say, right away, we know that something's off because the station's in disarray. There's kind of some weird stuff going on there. There's like that, uh, I think it's, uh, maybe it's Sartorius. I forget exactly whose room it is. Maybe it's Snow's. But there's like the crude drawing of like a person it looks like it was drawn by like a small child and it just says human being like it's on the door i think it might have been on the dude that killed himself <laughs> actually um and so you know right away i mean just trying to draw context from what that might be it's like okay well right away you get the sense maybe there's some alien life forms here or something like that and he's identifying himself as a human to differentiate from you know the non-human life forms and of course, we know that ends up being the case. Um, it, it's 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 kind of funny because you I think you mentioned this at the top of the show, but like I got the sense that this film very much wanted to be like Russian two thousand one, a space odyssey, and so it's really funny that like apparently Tarkovsky hated two thousand one, which by the way like strike right off the bat. Okay, when I found that out, I was like, oh hell no, right? Like you don't fuck with Kubrick, you don't fuck with two thousand one, like great film, I adore that film. So, like, when he's calling it, like, phony and lifeless and pretentious, it's like, okay, dude, if you're going to talk some shit, you better be prepared to back it up. And he came with some interesting ideas, but, like, you're not even, you're a fraction of 2001, let alone better. I also, though, feel like whatever Tarkovsky did well here, uh, Kubrick did better there. Correct. Uh, anything you could point to me that tar that, that is you know, done well about this film in my mind. I mean, it's just a, a, a moron's opinion, but in my <laughs> stupid opinion, I feel like uh, Kubrick 
you, you point whatever it is the long shots okay Kubrick freaking worked those long shots with yep. a you know movement on the camera and the three dimensional spinning around the whole bit and the spaceship with zero gravity um, and uh, the colors and the sound design and and the use of colors and imagery and all of that and even uh, the use of um, uh, spaceships and planets and all of that you know the traveling through space the the planet itself Solaris is kind of like uh, the monolith in 2001 in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and, uh, just being honest, uh, I was a little more, in, uh, no, no, let's just unwind that. I was a lot more engaged <laughs> in 2001 <laughs> than I ever was with this film, uh, as yes. well. So 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have, I think that, you know, Hal makes for a much more interesting antagonist than anything that's going on here. You do, you do. Then you, his horny ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so yes, let's go ahead and jump so. right into that. So basically, like like you're talking about, we get these sort of cool psychedelic shots of the ocean of Solaris, and it's swirling, and it's pulsing, and it's got this sort of funky exposure and colors, and they do a good yeah, job. Yeah, cool looking. Yeah, they do a good job of, I don't know if you had the same response, but there were times where I sat and just watched these visuals and watched this sort of like, roiling pulsing you know ocean body of water in this funky color and after like after like 30 to to 60 seconds it almost sort of did feel like a living breathing organism you know like i did sort of feel like oh this is like some sort of mass of consciousness you know in some sort of weird uh manifestation right um so I it, it, you ever it, see those uh, sand uh, things in like water behind glass and you spin them upside down and you can watch all the sand adjust and the oil or the water and it's yeah, like kind totally. of silty and it's like all different layers with different colors and stuff. You kind of watch it swirl around and then it finally settles in. That's looks like what they used, <laughs> but it was awesome and it looked fantastic on camera. And I really did believe it was a, you know, we were uh, about to see some shit. We were on an alien planet. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's funny too, because just you bring up a good point, like, like, Everything this movie did well, 2001 did better. It's kind of like the ending of 2001, right? Like this movie was like, oh, we're going to do it with water. But then Kubrick was like, I mean, even before this, because I think 2001 came out first. um, But the whole ending where I don't know if you've seen any of the behind the scenes about how they did the lights that come at you at the end of 2001. And they basically set up this sort of like, yeah, where they just sort of set up the two things on either side of the camera and then just like cranked it through. And so, again, it's sort of like it's similar. But yeah, 2001 did it better. Uh, let's play a clip. I have a clip of this is pretty much the end of part one where we're finally introduced to the ex-wife that is either Harry or Carrie, depending on who you listen to and talk to and which cut you listen to. Uh, I'm going to call her Harry because that's the way the subtitles presented her. If I have no idea if in Russia, you know, H's are presented as K's or whatnot. But either way, uh, do you think this was a. Do you think this was a play on words like Harry Carey kind of like the uh, <laughs> I think because isn't that mean he was like, in Japan maybe I was say you know he's filming in Japan right? he learned a thing he's like oh Harry Carey I'll use that and then uh, here we are you know <laughs> Yeah I mean she does I mean I mean you know spoiler alert even though our entire show is a giant spoiler alert uh she does kill herself at the end you know with a, a poison Harry needle Harry Carey baby yeah, yeah yeah so I mean you know following the rules of Harry Carey right but um uh, let's go ahead and play a clip. And, it, you know, if you have seen this movie, you know the general tone, vibe, probably picking it up from what we're putting out anyway. But this will sort of give you a clip. Uh, this will give you an idea as to exactly sort of how slow and meditative, even the dialogue, it's very slow and broken up. So this is his ex-wife, Harry, showing up for the first time. And then part two is going to immediately begin after. So let's give a listen here. I feel so strange. 
as if I'd forgotten something. What's the matter with me? Do you love me? Why do you have to ask, Carrie? As if you didn't know. Um, I've got to go out. I won't be long. Wait here. Why can't I come with you? No, Carrie, you can't. I'll be back soon. No. What's the matter? What do you mean, no? I don't know. I mustn't... You mustn't what? I mustn't let you go. I've got to be with you all the time to see you. You're being so childish. I've, I've got work to do, Carrie. You're right. I am acting childish. As for you, yes. You're as nervous as Dr. Stroud. As who? Dr. Stroud. Stroud? Where do you know Stroud? I've got to go. You can come with me if you want. Only, uh, you'll have to get into his suit. So, take that dress off. Chris, come help me. I can't do it by myself. So, yeah, Ryan. So, again, you know, that kind of gives you an idea of the pacing the style of dialogue etc and right after this part two begins and this is in my opinion where the film takes a turn for the worse this is kind of where everything goes downhill for me because right up until now we've gotten a lot of high level concepts it's a lot of discussion about solaris itself and about these sort of so the idea behind the central theme and hook behind the effect solaris is having on the scientists on the space station is that it's basically taking memories that these different scientists have and turning psychic projections of the people they're having the memories about into seemingly real people that are interacting with them on the space station. So if, you know, in this case, Kelvin's ex-wife takes up a lot of his mental faculties, and so it's his ex-wife that ends up being physically manifested, even though she's not technically real. She's just a psychic projection that the planet of Solaris has implemented onto the space station. So it's an interesting concept in and of itself. But, Ryan, let me ask you. So this is a concept that a lot of these type of science fiction films take, okay? And it's where we're going to question the nature of what it is to be human, okay? And we're going to do this through... Robots, androids, aliens, psychic projections, whatever, right? Recently, maybe maybe most recently seen it in a film like Ex Machina or something, right? And the central sort right. of theme is that it's not, you know, flesh and blood that makes you human. It's essentially your emotions. It's your ability to love, your ability to feel the memories that you hold of people. And I would like to know, Ryan, what is your feelings on this question so when someone says to you ryan 
We're asking you to question the nature of what it means to be human. We believe that an android or a robot can be human if they experience and feel real human emotions. Do you ad- agree or disagree and why? What's your response to that? Disagree. Human's a thing like the, uh, like a dog or a cat or a bird. It's a description of a type of life and um, not it's not descriptive of life itself so what you're describing is the human condition which you I think can replicate um, and you can uh, try to simulate that in various ways through robotics or whatever by teaching uh, artificial intelligence or in this case a, um, a facsimile if you will of your memories uh, to love to empathize to uh, emote in some way but uh, yeah, to say that it's human um, is a fallacy. And uh, that was Dr. Snout's point when he confronted Dr. Burton. Dr. Snout is one of the astronauts that uh, has fully accepted his madness. He's like, yeah, shit's crazy up here, bro. And uh, get used to it because that's just the way we roll now. And uh, Dr. Chris Kelvin's like, no, no, no. This is my wife, you know. And he's like, no, bro. Nah, your wife, man. But, you know, hey, fuck her like it's your wife, though. And boy, uh, his ex-wife is horny. They wanted, uh, that was like her first. She's thirsty. <laughs> She's got a lot of making that up is, to do. That was her first modus operandi is, is let's get down to business. She wanted to undress. She's like, it's been, I've been dead for like 10 years, bro. Let's do this. So, to the point where he was like taking a knife to cut off her dress and shit. I was like, ooh, that's some Russian shit. Love it. And... <laughs> I'm all in. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I will also say that um, Dr. Kelvin gets up to the spaceship and he's kind of briefed. He goes and visits these three uh, astronauts on the spaceship. Uh, one of them's dead. He goes and sees a video that he taped right before he offed himself as a more or less a word of warning, saying, I wish you would have gotten here sooner. Shit's gone crazy, whatever. The other two are perfectly fine with their madness. One of them's a little more rational and scientific about it than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of wants to find a cure. He also ends up calling uh, Dr. Kelvin out several times. And he's like, you know, hey, what are you fucking here for, dude? You here to bang your ex-wife or <laughs> you're imagining? Or are you here to like give us a good proper psychological reading? Because yeah. quite frankly, we need it. <laughs> we need some help. <laughs> Things I'm are kind of like, Was that, like a, was that his daughter? Here. Who was he seeing? Because <laughs> when he first gets a visit by Dr. Kelvin, there's this little person that comes running out. Yeah, and he, like, that was pushes so him weird, dude. And slams the door. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what the hell was that? Was that an Oompa Loompa or like a, like a child or a little person? Or Yeah, I, 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 I didn't I know what no the hell. Either. That guy, whoever it was, came running out of that room with a head full of steam. And uh, <laughs> that doctor was quick to push him back. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. get back in your room. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to imagine person. it was weird sex shit, whatever it was, right? Yeah, I love it. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of like, like to, to your point, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but to your no. point, all this stuff is happening. The Dr. Kelvin, like almost immediately after that, starts to see his ex-wife. Yeah. Um, so they wasted no time taking him down the path of madness. And, uh, you know, it all kind of happened very quick, uh, quickly. And next thing you know, um, he's trying to like ship his ex. He realizes right off the bat what's happening. He tries to ship his ex-wife out on an escape hatch uh, and jettison her out into space. And uh, that didn't work because she comes right back the next day. So, oh. Yeah. And, uh, and we've all so tried to get rid of our wives some way or another, right? Especially the exes. <laughs> right. Hey, man, who d- you're the married one. You, you have an escape <laughs> hatch on your house? Or- <laughs> By the way, if uh, Jason's wife is listening to this, I'm very sorry. 
<laughs> let me double back and uh, let me double back and follow up on uh, the question that I posed to you because here's here's what I want to say on the matter. So I, I'm 100% agreement with you. You know, I, I have a lot of films have asked us to consider this whole, you know, what is the nature of humanity, blah 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 thing. And I think the one thing that everybody kind of forgets is that there's an element of mortality to humanity. And without that, you can never know what it is to be human because that's like, right. That's like one of the two certain things in life, right? Like death and taxes. It's like you're born. The first thing you know is that you're going to die one day. And then from there, you just figure everything else out. Right. So the whole, and that I think ends up working against this film because there's no consequence for the wife dying in any sort of manner, right? Whether she's in pain, whether she's not, it doesn't matter because A, she's not really there to begin with, and B, regardless of whatever physical trauma she experiences, she's just going to bounce right back because she's a psychic projection. So without that fear of death, you can never know what it is to be human. And that's where I always end up when these types of questions are posed, like I said, using androids or robots or aliens or whatever. So if something is, by all intents and purposes, immortal, by definition, it can't know what it is to be human. So you asked me the question. I've considered and answered it. What else you got for me? Well, what if their batteries run out? (laughs) That's more of a logistical (laughs) issue. And I'm pretty sure Apple's already got that figured out. All right, wireless <laughs> charging station. So, uh, so yeah, so there's a lot of time spent. I think you this. have to ask yourself this: Do they poop? Because if because <laughs> everybody poops, and if they poop, then you know, hey, let's sit down and talk. But if you're not pooping, then we got some uh, we got some business we need to attend to because you ain't human. <laughs> I never realized how like bowel focused you are because I think in like the last episode with uh, a cure for wellness, like. <laughs> You were you really wanted to know if they pooped out the eels? Like where did the what eels happened to the go? leeches? Do they poop out or the, the eels? eels or yeah, not? what happened to the so, eels? Like, a lot of a lot they of whether or not Ryan likes your film is how well you answer the question of whether or not things get pooped out and in what manner. If you can't explain well, to us let's talk how about it gets that. pooped if out, if he didn't poop out, the don't eels, even show up. Is he human? Was he <laughs> was Dane DeHaan's? Maybe that was the twist we missed. I need to go back and revisit that now. <laughs> So shortly thereafter, uh, you know, there's like I said, there's probably, oh, geez, man. I mean, there's probably like an hour spent with that wife and then just hammering that message home. And that's where it that's where it lost both of us. You know, I I mean, we talked about that before the show is it just, you know, for this hour, it's just the same message hammered over and over. And also it was weird how much he covets his ex-wife, given the fact that we know nothing about her. And they seemingly didn't right. have a great relationship. And it seems more like instead of being motivated by a pure sense of love, it almost feels like it's more making up for missteps previously in their relationship, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's regret. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's like... It's a chance for redemption. It's yeah. like a redemption tale is kind of the deal. So, but here's the thing. If, 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 you're, if you're making a film where, you know, your central argument is, well, you know, what is it to be human... You got to give me some humanity, dude. You can't sit here and be a <laughs> robot asking what it is to be human. Like, what the hell, dude? Right. Like, it was, it was, it was, you know, I have no problem with, you know, sort of cold, distant filmmaking. I mean, you know, Kubrick fan, Chris Nolan fan, you know, these guys definitely have. Uh, so I, I can get behind your style, 
but but don't be an asshole about it. Don't don't pose a question that you you're you know you're not gonna <laughs> hold to yourself, right? Like don't have double standards, Tarkovsky. Okay, don't jump up my ass if you're not willing to jump up your own. That's all I'm saying. Well, and I, I easily pass this off as uh, initially as being, well, you know, it's a Russian film. Maybe they handle emotion a little differently. Maybe it's being approached from a different culture, be a little open minded. Uh, but then um, Dr. Snout, on the other hand, was an awesome character, dude. He was yeah. still lovable. And uh, the way he broke things down along the way, um, I almost kind of felt like he was the voice of the viewer sure. uh, in a way, kind of like a vehicle to get uh, to kind of interject from time to time. And, uh, hey, what's going on in here? You know, oh, shit, you broke the door down. It's like, no, no, that's my crazy ex-wife. He's like, oh, yeah, that's some crazy shit, right? Like, <laughs> I just love how nonchalant he, uh, Dr. Snout yeah, was. Yeah, he knows everything. exactly Just what the fact that his into. name was Dr. Snout, too. I love that his name was Dr. Snout. Uh, and uh, if you look in the credits, it's actually doctor with a K. So like uh, almost like Victor Vaughn, like from Dr. Doom. From the nice, Fantastic nice. Four. Russian as fuck. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Snout. Um, I hope we get to write that character one day. Into one of our <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so. OK. So right about now, we're going to go ahead and jump towards probably I don't know, the last half hour or so maybe. And this is where the film kind of starts to wrap itself up, which is where they pretty much are like. Look, it's shit or get off the pot time. Either we got to try to connect with Solaris or we got to try to destroy it. Uh, I believe it's the Sartorius guy. And he basically says we've got two options. The one is, Kelvin, you've actually been able to establish a psychic and emotional connection with Solaris by way of establishing emotional connection with the physical manifestation of your wife. The rest of us aren't able to do that. So you are able to connect with the entity of Solaris in a way the rest of us can't. What we want to do is we basically want to take like your your emotions and your brain waves and then infuse them with some plasma radiation and then blast the ocean of Solaris with basically like not just radiation, but also like your own personal memories, so to speak. Or we can blast it with neutrinos and destroy it. Right. Um, and so after some discussion, they decide like, OK, you know, we're going to go ahead and we're going to go with option A which is to blast it with what they call an encephalogram. So they do so, and it comes up very quickly that after they do that, these islands have started to pop up on Solaris. And that's going to set up the end shot that we're going to get to in just a moment, which is, you know, both both you and I agree is super cool. So right before we really come to understand what the islands are, there's actually that birthday party. And I think, Ryan, this is the uh, speech that you were alluding to kind of earlier. Uh, where Snow just kind of like he gets it. Um, but I thought it was really great because, you know, there's always in all of these sort of sci-fi movies of where, you know, man grappling with something that's beyond his reasoning and understanding, like there's always that one guy that, you know, has to admonish mankind for reaching beyond its grasp and Snout's given that care, uh, option. And I think that he makes a really salient point, you know, because part of his speech is not just about exceeding its grasp, but it's about the fact that, it's human nature to do so for something that you don't even understand what it is. And you have no use for this thing, no desire for it. Ultimately, you don't even know what it is. But the fact that it exists and is out there and is not in your possession, it's just ultimately a sort of greed based action. So, like, there is no reason that mankind should have been so obsessed because we weren't trying to ultimately really establish a connection with Solaris as is humans nature. You know, we wanted to own it. 
ultimately. That's what we wanted to do, right? So instead of recognizing it as a sentient being and treating it as such, we go to it and we just want to take it over. And Snell reiterates that through this really effective speech. And, uh, you know, basically it's after that that we see the effects of the encephalogram. That's when we get the reveal that, oh, you know, the wife ended up killing herself 10 years ago. That's what the sort of mark on her arm was. She stabbed herself with a poison needle. And then immediately after that, again, you know, it's just a lack of consequences. She drinks this liquid nitrogen, she being the psychic projection and manifestation that's on the space station with them, and kills herself. And then, like, the next scene, she's, like, coming back to life. And so, again, it's just the same thing, Ryan, like, over and over. Like, there's just no consequences for her death, so why does it keep asking me to care about her, you know? I would have liked to have seen a Groundhog Day montage of, like, all the different (laughs) ways they tried to kill her. (laughs) (laughs) Just have Ned Ryerson, like, hey, what's up? Can I sell you some insurance? (laughs) So, um, yeah, so uh, basically the film wraps up shortly thereafter, Kelvin is kind of, he's, you know, sick and he's on his deathbed and he has a dream, which I don't know if you necessarily had an opinion on this. I didn't quite understand it off the bat. I think at this point I was kind of beyond trying to understand, but like he has this dream where he's, he's with his, he's still the same age, but he's with his mom and she's like young and she's tending to him. And like, I don't know if she was supposed to be his mom or his wife or what that was, but you know, he has this I dream. Know. I mean, it's obviously black and white, so we're back in the memory thing. I get it. I wrote around this time. Am I dumb? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this movie smarter than me? Am I missing something here? Or uh, uh, whatever. Um, I also wrote the last 10 minutes of this, because is it worrying about the last 10 minutes of the film at this point? And uh, my notes around this time are the last 10 minutes are the longest 10 minutes of my life. <laughs> but that was before, because I thought it was ending, and I thought it was over, and then they did that twist on me. They pulled the rug out, and I was like, oh, shit. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so that was super cool, dude. So, yeah, which, so before that, real quick, also want to say, they just wrote her off, dude. Like, they just straight, like, piano played her off stage with no justification, <laughs> totally dude. Did. Like, just giant cane they coming totally off did. right stage, like, bloop. Like, yeah, it was a gong show <laughs> moment. <laughs> like she's this physical manifestation that he literally can't get rid of. And then all of a sudden at the end, it like the two scientists are like, Hey, Kelvin got rid of that wife for you. How'd you do it? Don't know, but we did it. Cool. Okay. I guess we're done then. <laughs> well, and then right after that, the snout was, uh, gave him this little wrap up, uh, monologue to, uh, our Dr. Kelvin, the psychologist that just went through hell in a handbasket about all this shit with his wife. And it's this emotional roller coaster. And uh, he's like, yeah, you know what, Chris? I think it's time you get the fuck out. (laughs) Kind of like puts his arm around him and slowly escorts him back to the old escape pod. He's like, yep. And then uh, I kind of felt that. Like, I was like, yeah, it's time for all of us to get the fuck out. I'm done with this fucking movie. Uh, We're about three hours in. Let's wrap it up. (laughs) So, yeah. So then we actually do get what ends up being the awesome reveal. So uh, he decides to leave Solaris. He being Kelvin goes back home. You know, he's back on his father's estate and he's on the outside of the house looking in through the window and all of a sudden it starts raining inside, you know, and that's like, huh, it's interesting because it's not raining outside, but it's just raining inside. And then as it pulls back, we basically get this giant reveal where his father's estate is actually on one of the islands that is on the planet of Solaris. 
And so, right. you know, I think Ryan, what did you? How did you interpret that? And it's in color. So <laughs> and it's, it's in reality. color. Reality, Ryan. How did you interpret that? <laughs> I interpreted it like. Damn you all to hell, fucking Charlton Heston moment. <laughs> it was Earth all along. <laughs> Soylent green is people. It's like every uh, Charlton Heston movie. This movie actually, uh, that, I'm glad I brought that up. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, you're welcome, buddy. I, <laughs> I thought uh, this movie was every Charlton Heston movie because Omega Man was like this. Soylent green was like this. Yeah, uh, right. Have you seen Omega Man? I, I saw it once in like senior year in high school. I do not. If you ask me anything about Dude, it, there are I so many remember. dry monologue. That movie was supposed to be, um, you know, an, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi masterpiece. Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was I am legend, movie. right? It was the adaptation of I am legend. Correct. But uh, it was just Charlton Heston, uh, waxing poetically over glass after glass of scotch whiskey in a wood paneled <laughs> 1970s bungalow. Um, and just going on all these monologues and, uh, you know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, and then there was a, you know, a bit of a twist at the end where he actually finds civilization. Um, the pacing, uh, I just kind of felt like this was the the cornerstone or basis of every single Charlton Heston sci-fi flick I've ever seen. <laughs> just my opinion. <laughs> totally, man. Totally. Well, and so I think, you know, if we really try to break it down as well, um, you know, so the whole movie Solaris is basically creating these psychic projections and these physical manifestations based on the scientist's memory. I think what the film is trying to express is that when they blasted the encephalogram with Kelvin's emotions and brainwaves, etc., attached to that radiation, that in doing so, the planet of Solaris, also being a sentient being in and of itself, more or less absorbed the memory of Kelvin. And because Solaris yep, has the ability to create physical manifestations from memories, when it did that, it was basically able to physically manifest Kelvin himself. Now, I guess the question from there is because Kelvin could, in theory, still be alive back home on his father's estate while Solaris is creating a physical manifestation based on the memory of Kelvin? Or is it that, like, Kelvin died and the only remaining version of him is the one on Solaris that is based on the memory? Or did his actual physical or physiological being get absorbed by the planet and now he lives there? I took the first one. Uh, I feel like we saw Snout break it down and escort him out of the space station in his, you know what, I think it's time for you to get the fuck out moment. Um, and so he escaped and, and went back home. Um, our next scene, uh, we are with Kelvin in what we believe to be him returning home, his homecoming moment, uh, but we're actually in the Solaris situation. I took it as uh, we see dr kelvin go back home that's the last we see of real dr kelvin then what we cut to is solaris's manifestation of him using the memories that were injected into the planet to start to create its own reality so mm -hmm. it's kind of a dot 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 question mark moment uh if you will sci-fi trope sure um, but I, I really uh, I liked it. It was kind of a Twilight Zone thing left up to your own uh, understanding or, or interpretation. Sure. Well, how did you take it? 
Yeah, no, I think that because uh, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have shown the spaceship, right? They wouldn't have shown him as being escorted. Like Solaris wouldn't have created that. Like that wouldn't have been a part of it. So the fact that we cut back and he woke up in bed, like Solaris ain't making spaceships and beds. Uh, it created an island with a house on it, and it was all a part of his memory and uh, and a manifestation of such. So I took that last scene of Snout breaking it down, saying "You go home now." And uh, all of that is that was kind of the end of the movie, and then we cut back to Solaris, the planet, and that's what they leave us with. Yeah, sure. So here's the thing: I I was honestly hoping that I would have enjoyed this movie a little bit more because there were a couple different takes on a couple different aspects of things, and like I didn't, you know, research the nature of the you know black and white and different color photography. So there were some sort of like David Lynchian puzzle elements that were included in this movie where I would have liked to have enjoyed it more to be able to go back and rewatch to answer your question. It's one of two things. I'm not a hundred percent sure which it is yet. Um, but it's either what you said, you know, that's option a, I do agree with that. The other thing that I had considered is, and maybe you can remember. So right before that, again, there's the scene where Kelvin gets sick. He's on his deathbed and he has the dream about his mom when he's being super young. Right. Do you recall if that was in black and white or what, color that was shot in oh no it was yeah it was that blue uh saturated black and white uh there was also a picture that she was using to like clean him up some for something yeah and that picture was uh in reality when he woke up by his bedside too so like there were parts of that that were still happening i think with the solaris yeah so 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 if you caught that yeah well no i didn't but to answer your question so the the other scenario that i had considered is that perhaps there's something where kelvin actually did die on that deathbed and maybe something about the dream with his mom being young um because why is she young right like there there may be something to that or else it's just you know oh let's be weird for the sake of weird but there could be some sort of clue there where his mom's young and that's some sort of indication that he actually does die in that moment on that deathbed and maybe you know the the black and white that that shot in would be a clue as to whether that did happen or not as well but there is a scenario where Kelvin dies on that deathbed and then it's actually the planet and the being of Solaris that allows him to continue living, so to speak. Because if that was the case, it would be a really poignant metaphor for the nature of memory and how, you know, with through memory, no one really dies. You know, that sort of concept that's been explored elsewhere. So it would be kind of interesting if, let's say, Kelvin did die, but because they blasted the encephalogram on Solaris, it was able to absorb the memory of him and then physically manifests him such that that's the only way that he continues living. Uh, Again, I don't know which it is, but that would be interesting. Uh, Again, I would agree with you up until the point of what I said, which is Dr. Snout and his breakdown. And I think it's time you go back home uh, and tells him how the surgery was a success and what had happened um, and how they're, you know, going to peace out. So that the fact that that scene was in there in vibrant color kind of tells me that uh, then what is that? Like, is that is he imagining that as well? Or is Solaris creating that? Like, where did that scene fit in in that scenario that you're proposing? That's what I, I guess that's where you're losing me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in this scenario, yeah, it would just sort of be, I guess, you know, sort of like a like a, an imagination, sort of like, do you ever play the Mass Effect games? The what? The Mass Effect games. No. No, you never played Mass Effect, so, all right, well. 
No. I have to go back and edit this part out then. But for anyone who's played Mass Effect, uh, Mass Effect 3 basically has this thing where it's an ending, but it never really happened because uh, he, he his mind was actually absorbed by, like, this hive mind. So I think it's kind of this thing, like, in this scenario, right, maybe that explains why there is no explanation for why the ex-wife just suddenly disappears. And maybe that's an explanation why they just sort of like, okay, peace out, right? Because, like... Maybe he actually died, and so as such, with him dead, there's no way to, to in actuality, effectively resolve the ex-wife moving on and them getting back home. So they just kind of speed through that. Like, maybe that's intentional to indicate that. Do you think that Dr. Snout escorting him and telling him to go back home is more or less the... the uh, Russian hopeless version of St. Peter at the pearly gates. Cause if so, that would be so awesome if we die and like Dr. Snout's waiting there and he's like, dude, I think it's time you get the fuck out of here. And like, yeah. that's how you get escorted into the afterlife. <laughs> that, yeah. That's totally cool. Yeah. And, and we picture some grandiose clouds and a man in white flowing robes. Nope. You get a sterile Russian doctor saying, you know what? <laughs> you had your shot, buddy. Time to get the fuck out of here. You're crazy. We saw what you did. That's totally what it's going to be, dude. Right. It's going to be like the, the, the heavyset woman smoking a cigarette with like the curl still on her hair. Yep. Who was like, Hey, welcome to heaven. Get in the left lane. <laughs> The, the waiting room for Beetlejuice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and again, you know, I, to answer your question, I, I'm not prepared to say which it is or not because, you know, these are just some potential ideas I had the first time around. That's why I was saying I would have loved to have liked it more to be able to go back and rewatch it and then give you a sense of which I thought it was. But oh, I think God. this is going to be one of those. If you things... rewatch this movie, dude. My hat's <laughs> off to you, bro. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I can see it happening in uh, maybe three to five years. You know, maybe like after enough time has passed, right. like I might, I might check it out right. again. I, I'm going to need Solaris to manifest my memories of this movie <laughs> in, in order for me to relive them. That's the only way I'm going back to this. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. I'm not going to go full lives of others on this one, but uh, you know. <laughs> Not gonna say it's a great <laughs> genre-defining film or anything, but <laughs> no, it's just not my. Uh, it wasn't my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, so let's go ahead and wrap this up, man. As we do with these films, why don't you give me your three adjectives? Uh, quiet. It's funny. Um, he described. 2001 a space odyssey is sterile and yet i found this movie to be much more sterile totally than that movie. so i wanted to kind of slap tarkovsky in the <laughs> little russian mouth and i put quiet uh sterile and visually stunning because i do i do feel like the camera work was done very very well especially for the budget that it was done on and uh yeah yeah no you're absolutely right i agree with all three of those it wasn't horrible it did have some things to offer so my three adjectives reflect that. The first one is thought-provoking. It did sort of give us a lot of high-level concepts to discuss. And I actually think, Ryan, I think this is a film that's actually more interesting and more fun to talk about than it is to actually watch. Um, like, I actually enjoyed talking about you the, about this movie with you for the last hour or so, but I definitely wouldn't want to go back and rewatch it anytime soon. Yeah, but would you would you want to talk about this movie for three hours? Because that's how long the fucking movie was. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, I think th I think this hour has been planned. Let's keep going, everybody. You're in store for an extra long. <laughs> All right, so a minute forty three podcast. <laughs> Bonus content. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll start a Patreon and we'll just talk about uh, Solaris the... for three hours. 
<laughs> I want the Snyder cut of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so the second one is misguided. I found this to be a misguided attempt where this could have been a great movie. I don't know if you felt the same way. I felt like there was totally a yep. five-star movie in here somewhere, but they just didn't take it where it should have gone. I agree. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is more than one word, a tale of two halves. I thought the first half of this movie was fantastic. I was like all ready to like, you know, use my $25 credit on Amazon to grab the criterion and do a little bit more digging about what this is and that is. And then when the second half of the film just focused on nothing but the wife and, you know, again, asked me questions that I've already considered and resolved. And as we've said before, you know, when we look at these older films, we can't tell you whether or not this movie was the first film to bring up a lot of these things. I mean, it, 2001 did it before, obviously, but in terms of, you know, Ex Machina, obviously this came 50 years before that. So a lot of the, th the films that we're kind of comparing it to, this may have led to those. But once again, you know, we, we're not here to tell you what the effect of this film coming out in the 70s was because we weren't there. All we can do is tell you our reaction to it here and now. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and slap a rating on this. There's So every single time, I always like to ask Ryan, like, how many stars out of five would you get? And the most common response I get to Ryan, how many stars would you give it is C+. Which is not a star rating. It's a grade <laughs> rating, obviously. So I'm done trying to fight Ryan on this. Moving forward, you will get a star rating from me, and you'll get a grade rating from Ryan. So Ryan, what grade would you give this movie? Hey, man, you start giving me some star-rated movies, I'll give you some star ratings. But uh, <laughs> wait a, you, you dumb this down for me. I got to dumb this down, too, and it's going to be grade school ratings. This is the deal. <laughs> Um, maybe in a Solaris twist, by the time you get to A+, you find out that that's where you hit one star. And then you've only just begun, and it's got full star rating from there. <laughs> A+, what's better than A+, one star. One star? What have we been doing this whole time? Um, yeah, I, uh, I would give this movie, <laughs> I would give this movie a C+. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I'm not even going to pull punches. That's just what it is, bro. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and I think this kind of puts us about the same. I'm going to give it three and a half out of five stars. I think that probably is probably the equivalent of about a C+. Uh, the one thing I will say is that this recommendation comes with a concession that it's a film that, as I mentioned before, more interesting to discuss than watch. And the other thing is that the enjoyment and your specific enjoyment from this film is strongly going to depend on your taste for slow, heady sci-fi. That's absolutely what it is. If you find yourself, like if you thought 2001 was boring, you're going to find this movie fucking boring, right? Like it is not uh, for people that enjoy the thrill ride sci-fi or anything like that. That Not being said, do you um, like missionary sex listening to Kenny G? Then hey, <laughs> dive right in. Dive right in. Leave your shirts on, folks. Leave your shirts on. <laughs> missionary sex, Kenny G, Solaris, 1972, Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and cut to a commercial break, guys. Stick around, and we will be back with a discussion of wild strawberries. It's still sex, Jason. It's still sex. It's missionary sex, but it's still sex, you know, so C+. <laughs> Aberrant Literature is proud to present the next great anthology in modern fiction, Aberrant Tales, edited by Jason Peters. 
Most anthologies are content to sit in one lane, offering bland, repetitive versions of the same types of stories. Aberrant Tales is different. Aberrant literature turns the anthology on its head by blending together multiple genres within the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. With Aberrant Tales, no two stories are ever the same. In one story, you're being transported to a faraway future where corporations allow access to visions of your future, while in the next, you're taken to a distant land of dark fantasy featuring errant knights and grotesque monstrosities. Aberrant Tales is a unique collection of short fiction for those who are tired of the same old thing. It's unapologetically creative, wonderfully imaginative, and embraces its own unique spirit. Find Aberrant Tales today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. Welcome back to Esoterica Cinema. Right about now, we would generally have a trailer for you of our second film. And as it turns out, much like our last episode with the lives of others, there is no English language trailer that's available out there. So, just going to have to listen to us all episode and be fine with that. What do you think, Ryan? <laughs> think we could carry it? Dive right in. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, I, I had to watch this. Uh, I had to watch this shitty movie, so they got to listen to our <laughs> shitty voices. That's the trade off. I jumped on that grenade for you all. Uh, all three of you listeners, this is for you. So, you got to deal with us now. Let's go ahead. So right before we get into this. So again, to reiterate, the film is Wild Strawberries. It's an Ingmar Bergman film. Um, this is a movie that won a shit ton of awards when it came out. I believe it was 1959. Did it really? Oh, yeah. No. So like all over the world, let alone in its native Sweden, but even in America. Wow. Yeah. But even in America, of all things, it was nominated for an Oscar for best screenplay. So like, what? yeah, I don't know what fucking film they were watching. This is an IMDb top 200 movie that sits at 167. It has an 8.2 star average, which puts it on par with the seventh seal, which is such a superior film. And for the life of me, Ryan, I don't know what film these people are watching. It must've been something different than from what you or I were watching because, uh, you didn't like this film either, right? No, I didn't really care for it. Yeah, I didn't either, man. I didn't either. So here's the thing. Despite this, you know, we're still going to walk through it. We're still going to talk about it the same way we would any other film, of course. Um, and we're going to really look at maybe some of the uh, issues that we had with this film. So now I will say that when it starts off, like, the, of course, as with most films, like, there's going to be one or two redeeming qualities, right? So, like, right off the bat, before we even begin, the one thing I will say is that while it wasn't consistent, there was some, at times, striking black and white photography that was really effective and really well lit and really, uh, excuse me, really well shot. Um, the other thing is that I did think that uh, the main character, I forget, I forget the real guy's name, he was apparently like a film director, but uh, I thought he did a good job with the role. So I will give it those two things and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> you, you good now? You feel better about yourself? You're going to sleep tonight? <laughs> yeah, I just want to throw that out there so, uh, you know, I can feel good about trashing it from this point forward. And, and by all means, so to anybody listening, I mean, this film is really well received. And you may be one of those people that has seen this film and that does love this film. Please, please reach out to us. 
Reach out to us on Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. Send us an email at EsotericaCinema at gmail.com. We would love to know what it is that we may have missed on this because both of us were just like, yeah, I don't, I don't understand why this film has the reputation. Why was it allowed into the Criterion Collection? None of these things. So when we start, we're introduced to the protagonist. This is an old gentleman by the name of Isaac, Isaac Borg. He's a professor, and he is sitting at his desk and he's writing and again there's very nice black and white photography in this scene and uh he learns very quickly uh from his sort of like a de facto wife but really she's something of a servant miss agda that he's receiving an honorary degree from the university that i don't know what university apparently did did you get that did he used to teach there or did you know what even the university was well, uh, actually, I'm going to interrupt you here because I could sum all this up uh, and save you a little time by reading the summary here right off of IMDb, uh, oh, if you don't mind. Let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of get everyone caught up so we're on the same page and then we could really start to dissect this thing and, and rip it to shreds. Fair enough. Uh, so Dr. Isaac Borg, uh, who is our protagonist, uh, 78 years old, is a renowned physician and researcher. His life's experiences have left him cold, distant and uncaring. Now he is traveling to be uh, awarded an honorary degree by a university, a reward for his life's work, driving with his daughter-in-law, Marianne, currently estranged from his son, uh, Ewald, uh, whose personality seems to be following that of his father's. He finds himself reminiscing about his past, especially his 20s. He has also been having strange dreams, dreams that remind him of the person he has become and potentially what lies ahead for him. Uh, this is all kind of told uh, through hitchhikers he picks up and different uh, people he encounters along the way. They all kind of teach him a little something about his past and, and hold a mirror up to the man he has become, right? So that's a summary from IMDb. Um, so thanks for letting us uh, cop your style here. Uh, <laughs> couple things, man. For starters, uh, I was uh, taken aback right from the get that uh, Ingmar Bergman has no relation to Ingrid Bergman. I had no idea. I thought they were related this whole fucking time. <laughs> My bad on that, everybody. Uh, so if I give myself away a little bit or, or you hear me talk bad about this movie and you think this is a good movie, also remember who's telling you this. It's an asshole that didn't know that Ingrid Bergman wasn't related to Ingmar Bergman. So whatever. Take it all in stride. Uh, I also want to add, um, you're talking about this movie coming out in 1957, uh, according to IMDb. Uh, you're... This movie was well-heralded uh, all over the world and given awards and blah, blah, blah. Let's also go down the list of what popular music was going on at that time. Uh, Too Much by Elvis Presley. We got Party Doll by Buddy Knox. Uh, you got Perry Como with Round and Round. You got That'll Be the Day by The Crickets. Uh, these are all in the top 10 uh, songs at that time. The popular movies are The Ten Commandments was number one. Uh, Around the World in 80 Days was number two. Giant was number three. Pal Joey was number four. Seven Wonders of the World was number five. Um, so we're not talking about a culturally phenomenal year here is what I guess I'm getting at. There's nothing really <laughs> standing out where it's like, wow, they they put this uh, you know huge movie out there. Um, I will say Bridge Over the River Kauai won Best Picture. Mm. So uh, David Lean swept uh, that year uh, with Best Director. Uh, Alec Guinness won for Best Actor on Bridge Over the River Kwai. But overall, man, I'm just not thinking uh, maybe these things, uh, this thing stood out there <laughs> worldwide because, hey, what else we got, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a week here. So he, he finds out that he's going to get this honorary degree. And right immediately uh, we get this cool little dream sequence. Now, I actually did like this scene. Uh, it was a little bit inconsistently photographed, but I did like the slow, surreal nature 
with sort of like the clocks with the missing hands. And then even though it wasn't necessarily a uh, hugely impactful scene, there is a nice little sort of tracking shot where it sort of goes up and down the street following uh, Isaac as he's kind of confused trying to figure out his way. That's when he sees like the man with the odd face where he turns him around and then he's got this like scrunched up face. It's a little, it's a little uh, Salvador Dali a little bit. And then he like falls to the ground and it breaks and water falls out. So there's kind of this like surreal stuff going on here. The black horse drawn carriage, like all of a sudden comes around the corner, gets stuck on a lamppost and then it crashes. He moves, it, they move forward. And then this coffin falls out. The arm sticking out turns out to be him. It's, it's a bit of an obvious metaphor, but there were some cool visuals there, and so I was like, okay, well, maybe we'll get a lot more stuff like this. We did not get a lot more stuff like that. I think there's maybe <laughs> I think there's maybe one other scene a little bit later where it's the, you know, with the, the baby in the carriage. That scene was, was kind of similar. But, um, yeah, so, and then he goes back, and he's kind of freaked out, and then I guess for whatever reason he decides that he doesn't want to fly anymore, that he wants to... I guess I guess saying it out loud now, like maybe the thing was that like he was sort of afraid of death or something, or it was like some sort of harbinger of. So he just decided that he wanted to drive. What do you think, Ryan? I don't know. I I mean, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. So much of this film is like <laughs> so much of this film. I feel is like, why should I even ask myself that question? Like, I really feel like this is a lazy film. Like, if this was not from somebody with Ingmar Bergman's reputation, like. I, I don't know that this film would have been as highly regarded as it is. You know, I think there's probably an element of, you know, people come to his movies wanting to like them because of his reputation. But to me, this movie was just so all over the place. Like, I didn't feel like it knew what it wanted to be at all, you know. So when it first starts off, you're thinking like, okay, you know, it's going to be this like deeply somber, meditative sort of film where it, you know, it's he's going to go through some of the decisions that he made through his life and maybe regret them and try to change and blah, blah, blah. And like, I I think that it tried to be that, but it ultimately failed. And so, you know, we'll kind of look at a little bit of the reasons why. So right off the bat, we're introduced to, once he decides he's going to drive, we're introduced to his daughter-in-law. I believe her name was Marianne. Yep. By the way, that woman was stunning. Like, I just want to say, I thought yeah, that woman was. was breathtaking and she was beautiful. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know the name of this actress. And uh, so she decides that she's going to go home and reconcile with her husband, who's this guy, Evald, who's Isaac's son. Um, and we learn later in the movie that uh, he's kind of pissed off because she's pregnant and she wants to keep it. And he doesn't because he's kind of like this nihilistic, like, it's almost kind of like a goth kid, right? Who just like hates, like life is pain kind of guy, right? Like, why would I bring like a kid onto this world? That's so just garbage humanity and blah, 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 this stuff. And it's like, so, you know, and I guess we're, we're kind of meant to imagine that Isaac was, you know, domineering. And this is also one of the huge problems that I had with this movie, dude. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like I, the Isaac that we get in this movie wasn't such a bad guy. And, and, and I get that maybe the, the, the idea is like he, you know, did all these things in the past and he was like, we hear these stories of him kind of being like, you know, cruel, like especially with the Marianne character. Um, but like, he, we don't really see him be cruel. He's a pretty like gentle dude for most of the time, you know, like, and so it was like, yeah. 
and well loved. It was hard to resolve the character that they were kept telling us that he was because it's kind of like, well, I, you know, I just, I'm sorry. I don't see it. Like he doesn't really seem like such a bad guy. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the premise and the setup and, and the, the way I kind of felt going into this was somewhere between um, an Ebenezer Scrooge, it's a wonderful life kind of mashup mixed with Knives Out, you know, uh, where the whole family's kind of out to get this guy or they didn't like him and they paint this guy out to be like a crotchety character. But I just felt like it didn't work because it fell flat. And a lot of the details, to your point uh, earlier when, when you asked your question, um, about, uh, you know, the setup and, and some of the, the flashbacks and things, the dream sequences and stuff. Like, some of the nuggets that they gave you, why he didn't want to fly, for example. Like, none of that had any payoff or any uh, absolute resolution or impact on the characters. They were just kind of details or choices that were made along the way that never really added up to much, like you were saying. I, I do agree with you on that. So, it, what it did was, uh, as you started to get into the movie and realize that, at least with me, I started to give a fuck less about these <laughs> things that they were giving me along the way because... Um, yeah, there was no resolution to any of them or any purpose for it. They were just character choices. And, uh, I mean, I even wrote at one point, like, what genre is this? Like, what yes. would you call this? Is this a, I mean, obviously it's trying to be a drama, like a reflective drama or some kind of like morality tale. Yeah. But, um, to your point, there wasn't even a morality tale because he wasn't even, I mean, he was a chauvinist. He was crotchety, stuck in his ways, stubborn, but Hey, uh, you know, that's that's the deal. He was old, and it was the fifties. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if the that guy's seen some shit. You know, he's probably lived through some things. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, the guy was you know born in eighteen dickety six, and so yeah, he might have traditional views. You know, like yeah. that's how that's gonna. He's go, seen a couple world wars. I mean, they're in Sweden. You know, that's that'll roughen you up a little bit. I'm sure he's fought in the war. That was kind of what happened back then. I don't know, man. I just uh, I didn't think uh, you know was he a, a great good man? No. But he certainly seemed to be well-respected because when they ran into Max von Sydow at the gas station down the road, like, yeah. he was like, no, I'm paying for your gas. You're a cool dude. Like, we respect <laughs> what you did for humanity and mankind. And uh, thanks for all of that. And I was like, oh, I thought this guy was supposed to be a total douchebag. And um, I'm actually coming around. Like, quite yeah. the contrary. I think the daughter turned out to be uh, more dislikable to me. She was downright rude. And he like opened his house up to her and like took her on the trip. He was taking her back to his, her son. Like he, he complained about it, got through the way. He's like, you shouldn't dump your emotional bullshit here, you know, on my doorstep. But uh, look, I took you in. You asked for some help. I gave it to you, gave you some personal space. Uh, you know, it's my son, but here you are. And I'm, you know, siding or helping you out where I can. So she was a total uh, a C word, you know. I didn't really appreciate uh <laughs> her demeanor to an extent. I mean, he was, he was a total chauvinist and a prick, you know, in that regard, you know, the patriarchy and all that, but yeah, not a yeah. fan. Yeah, dude. Well, yeah. So, and I think that that was kind of one of the problems with the film is we end up sympathizing more with Isaac along the way than I think the film intended us to just because right, yeah, again, you know, we don't, we don't see these instances. We hear them and so, like, when she tells the story about when she first went to Isaac, Marianne, the, the the daughter-in-law, that is, for help, and he was just, you know, cold and harsh to her, like, yeah, I could understand if that was the case, and in which I'm sure it was, but, you know, you didn't give us the opportunity to see that. It's all just told that everything that I'm seeing is this guy who's just, you know, again, like, at the tail end of his life and looking back, and, but it's like, none of it was weighty enough, you know, if that makes sense, like... None of the wrongs he committed were that wrong. 
And if anything, it seemed like he was wronged more than he really did wrong. I mean, you know, we get this scene. So, okay, first of all, back to your point. This movie wasn't 100% sure what it wanted to be. And that's why it feels like, I don't know, it almost feels like it was like contractually obligated to the studio for him to do this movie. And he wasn't quite sure what he was going to film. And so he started writing and, you know, it went in this direction. And then this scene went in that direction and da-da-da. And instead of trying to bring it all together in a sort of cohesive way, it just ended up feeling very fractured, you know? And so, like, when it started out, it kind of seemed like, okay, well, you know, maybe this is a little bit of like a... You know, it's going to be one of those movies where it's a meditation on life and death. But then after that, we get, you know, the the dream sequence. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this is more of like a surreal art house film. But then all of a sudden, like, they're picking up a bunch of hitchhikers. And then, you know, this this married couple that's just, you know, some caricature of like, you know, a, a fighting married couple. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, so this is a this is a buddy road comedy now is what this is, right? But then now it's a Jack Kerouac movie, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, but then on? they like <laughs> then they stop to have dinner, and then it's like you know, well, God doesn't exist. Yes, He does. And then it's like, okay, so now you're like an existential examination of philosophy, like just the entire. And look, if you had found a way to take all of these sort of disparate elements and weave them together in a cohesive way. That, that would make for a really good film, but this film doesn't do that. It just bounces around from no. from styles and scenes and it doesn't again, it doesn't really feel like it knows what it is or what it even wants to be, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this this movie is a uh a lunchroom shepherd's pie when you were in seventh grade. It's not great. <laughs> it's just an amalgamation of leftover shit that you don't even know what it's supposed to be. <laughs> So, I was like, yeah, I had a little um, bit of this and a little bit of that left over from previous projects. So I just kind of threw them all in a pot and like, like, I wouldn't be surprised if these were literally just discarded cutting room scenes from previous projects. And he just like pasted them together and called it a manuscript and was like, hey, give me some money. Let's <laughs> film this bitch. <laughs> so he they they go <laughs> they go on this road trip and he's going to get this award. He doesn't want to fly there. He's going to drive the why. Uh, his son's wife, his daughter-in-law, convinces him to take her along so that they can, you know, get together, whatever, and they uh, kiss and make up or whatever and, and solve their problems. So he's like, all right, hop in. Let's all fucking go, right? So then they go, and then they go to, what, his childhood vacation home or something. Is that correct? Is that what they where the, where the wild strawberries grow, hence the name? Correct, um, yeah. And they're wandering through the, like, they pull over, and they're, like, walking through the woods. He's like, come on, I want to show you something. And uh, my first thing was, like, is he going to kill this chick? Like, oh, shit, <laughs> he's taking her out in the woods. I know how this ends. And uh, this is about to get dark. And, and it's like, no, let's go swimming. I'm like, swimming? Like, what the fuck? I thought you were going to get an award. You're... And it's like, no, let's camp out here for a while. I'm like, well, that's bohemian. Like, I'm in. Um, and then, you know, that goes on. And then there's like a flashback. And then they start to break down, right? Like, uh, if I understood this correctly, it looks like they're doing flashbacks to showcase the disservices he was done by his family and his friends and his lovers and blah, 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 to kind of get us to why he is the way he is. And so that he could learn. Again, in a very uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Ebenezer Scrooge visited by three Christmas ghosts kind of way, uh, like to snap up and be a better person. But mm -hmm. he wasn't that bad to begin with. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things that were happening to him weren't that tragic, really. I mean, uh, it's love lost and, you know, the typical tropes. And so I had a hard time of really feeling one way or another about anybody and so they're the protagonist or the antagonist or whatever uh you want to call it not, neither did he feel 
like, yeah. does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And then the film just also just continues to give us reasons to sympathize with Isaac. So like, again, so you know, I would say that we've got a very fir- uh, a very short first act, and then we've got most of the film as you know the second act. And the entire second act is, like I said, basically like a a road trip film. And one of the scenes that we get is when he goes to visit his mother. And when we are introduced to her, like, we see that she's, like, that very sort of traditional, like, nasty old school woman. Like, she's talking smack about, like, the kids and the grandkids. And she's talking smack about Marianne in front of her right there. And, you know, admonishing her for not having more children already and all these different things. Like, at one point she even, like, she even, like, discards, like, a family picture of them or something. Or, like, no, what was it? Uh, Isaac was asking about this family picture. And he's like, can I have this? And she's like, of course you can. It's rubbish. It's garbage. And so it's like, okay, so, you know, now we understand (laughs) that, okay, he's got this, like, crazy cold mother you know, that's reinforced by the flashback scene as well. So if you remember the flashback scene where, you know, they have this like giant, you know, probably Catholic family of like 10 or so. Didn't really seem like there was a dad, right? It was just the mom. Yeah. Tw- uh, yeah. 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 So um, and then there's also like there's, there's like this scene at the, the dinner table where, you know, I think the the point is to show us that, you know, she's like this domineering figure and all of that. But. It also felt like, I don't know, it was like the Swedish equivalent of like the Nutty Professor or something. And those were like supposed to be comedy, but it was like weird, subtle Swedish comedy that didn't really land. But it's like, you know, we've got all these people around like the big table. And again, is you this know, with we the just, twins? Yeah, with the weird yeah, hair? yeah, with the twins and everything. Yeah. And it's so, so, and so again, you know, we see like, we just keep getting reasons to sympathize with Isaac. So when you're telling us that like he was this horrible person, it's like, uh, you're saying that, but uh, you know, I don't really see it. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and I'll take it one step further, man. I was kind of bored. Like oh, there yeah. wasn't really much going on oh, and they yeah. weren't giving me much to cling to. I wasn't really looking forward to the next scene. Nothing was, uh, there was no payoff to any of the little nuggets they were giving me, like we said earlier. So, um, I just found myself more and more and more disinterested in this film. Um, it's also unfair too, because, uh, just to point this out, uh, we've done several foreign films, um, in the last few episodes. So, uh, just, it gets a little tiring when you're just constantly reading movies. I know that's kind of a, a basic thing to say, but uh, I just feel like I'm reading my movies, which doesn't leave me much time to take notes or look up trivia or try to document certain things or research certain things. So, um, you know, I it's kind of, if I have to read another movie, Jason, I'm quitting this and joining a book club. That's just going to be it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dude, buddy. I'm leaving you hanging. Honestly, I think more, I, I think more than that. Like, I think if you had enjoyed a lot of these films, you probably wouldn't be saying that. You know, I think part of you're it right, is you're also right. just well, for, yeah, it's a chicken or the egg, right? So, yeah, am exactly. I not enjoying it because I'm reading so much and it's like taking, you know, it's just like taking so much of my attention. I can't just lose myself in the acting and the you want to switch it stuff up. or. Is it the other way around? Am I just so bored that I'm noticing that I'm (laughs) reading it? Like, maybe if it was a better movie, I shouldn't second guess it, right? Like, hey, that's on you, not me. Don't blame me for this. Don't put this on me. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if it's the latter, though, dude, because I think we didn't 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 you mention recently that uh, you watch Parasite? Yeah, yeah, I did. And that was Parasite was fucking great, right? That was an awesome movie. It was wonderful. And so I just 
I, think I recently just, rewatched Kung Fu Hustle too. Same thing. Yeah. So I think it's just for whatever reason, like we've just, we've had a stretch of films that maybe haven't quite appealed to you. And for me either, like, I mean, you know, you had four in a row, let's say that you didn't really like as far as these main episodes are concerned. And, you know, I, I had three of four because I really did like the lives of others, but you know, it's fine. We can check them off the list, right? Either way, these are two films, you know, an Ingmar Bergman film and then Solaris Tarkovsky film that any self-respecting film nerd should probably have seen at least once and have an opinion on, you know? So we can. Yeah. And look, uh, you know, maybe this is a film where the narrative needs to shift, right? Maybe this is a film where, you know, we talk about sometimes there's movies where they were incredibly well-received, at the time, and, you know, uh, just over time, people sort of picked them apart. I wouldn't be surprised if this was in that discussion, you know, people... And look, like I said, anybody that's listening that gets this movie, that understands why it is, and, and just couldn't disagree with us more, let us know what we're missing. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to understand the positive response consistently to this film. So, let's get back to it, though, Ryan. Let's go ahead... And uh, so there's the part where, you know, after all this happens, they end up picking up the hitchhikers is the two guys and the very free spirited girl. And, you know, it seems like maybe there's something of a love triangle there that kind of goes unexplored. Go figure something in this movie goes unexplored. Right. And uh, (laughs) it it just it, it felt like maybe they were trying to be funny and maybe that's just a lost in translation thing. But like. I, I, again, it just sort of, it felt just sort of tacked on. And then, dude, what was with, like, the middle-aged couple and that whole car accident thing? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, man, it was like a, so, you know, they, they basically get into this car accident. It's this middle-aged couple. And, you know, the next thing you know, uh, you know, they, I guess, sort of strike up a bit of a friendship or at least enough that after the couple's car doesn't work anymore, they're able to hitch a ride with the rest of the gang. So they get in and like the husband's a condescending dick and he's just like talking shit about his wife and all this stuff to the point that like she actually just kind of like slaps the shit out of him for like what he's saying. And they're being like totally rude and inconsiderate. So they, they just they stop the car in the middle of like nowhere and they're like, hey, get the <laughs> get hell the out. Fuck out. Your time is uh, your time has yeah. come. You're no longer welcome. And they just like. They just get out and they're just like walking down like the street at random in the middle of some giant field. Like, I don't know if it's like a Sweden thing. Sweden's like, oh, yes. Well, you know, the magical deer will come and pick them up and take them to safety or whatever <laughs> Swedish folklore bullshit they have there. Right. But like, uh, yeah, either way, they're just like, fuck you, get out. Yeah. I mean, the the husband uh, was like, oh, yeah, my driving. She was hitting me and. uh you know how wives are. And then they get in the car and uh, he basically straight up says, yeah, my wife's a total bitch and I'm Catholic. So what are you going to do? Like (laughs) we're a crazy couple. It'll never work between us. And then, uh, and then they're like, uh, I almost feel like um, uh, Isaac acted as the viewer where, uh, or even the the screenwriter where uh, he basically uh, adjusted the, the screenplay that these two characters aren't working. Get, get rid of them. <laughs> so they just like, like they didn't want to edit them out or for some reason, I don't know why they, yeah. they kept that in the movie, but they had no, this kind of uh, harkens back to again, what we keep talking about over and over again, where they give us stuff with that doesn't have any payoff, doesn't have any uh, resolution or um, 
uh, effect on our characters. And these two, these two people, this husband and wife team, are entire characters that do that. Where they introduce them, <laughs> this car crash, they get the, you know, we're, we're about, you know, 10, 15 minutes invested in this. And they're just like, get out. And then it's like, whoa, wait, what? Yeah. So what did we do that for? That yeah. was stupid. Like, <laughs> like this know. is a ninety-minute movie. This is a ninety-minute movie, and you've got to have you've got to have a filler scene. You can't like think of anything else to do with those ten or fifteen minutes. Yeah, right. I'll give them a purpose. Like, I'm not yeah. saying you have to write them out, but Jesus, like, have some kind of effect on the situation somehow. Um, I, I can't tell you what that is because at this point in the movie, I'm so bored anyway that I don't even know that that could have fixed it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. You're I absolutely do, right. I, on a positive note, it's right around this time I have in my notes um, here that I do love the Swedish cadence, dude. There is, I just love to hear Swedish people talk. It's so much fun <laughs> from this, from from uh, you know Max von Sydow at the gas station to the Swedish chef and anyone in between. I'm all in for it, whether it's a stereotype or not. They just have the best cadence. It's so sweet and I love it. So for that, uh, orally speaking, I'm in for sure. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so uh, it's uh, you know we can go ahead and uh, kind of jump forward here. So so right before kind of they get to the university, uh, there's actually that scene where uh, he falls asleep in the car, Isaac that is, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he's talking to the ex-fiance that ended up marrying his brother. That's where we get kind of the second surreal scene that I was referring to earlier, where there's like the baby in the cradle in the woods, and we get. You know, the huge flock of birds that's traversing across the sky. But uh, shortly after that, he arrives at university and he's given this sort of strenuous examination by like this, uh, like a, like a, like a headmaster of sorts. Right. And he's failing all of his tests. And then the movie does something that I feel like is, is, is pretty unfortunate, which is that uh, it's got these really sort of like basic bitch metaphors, dude, like. For, for for a filmmaker that's as highly regarded as Ingmar Bergman. So, like, after all of this uh, examination is is administered by this headmaster, he finally, you know, gives gives him his judgment, and he's formally accused of guilt. He's like, you're guilty of being guilty, you know? And it's like, that's just, like, so <laughs> on... That's literally, you couldn't be more on the nose, right? Like, and, right, then, yeah. and then when he passes judgment, he's like, we judge you as being incompetent and it's like you're just saying the thing like like surreal dream <laughs> sequences are like all metaphor and you're just saying the thing like that's not how this works when it's done effectively and is so it just keeps in line with just this directionless rudderless approach to this film it's almost just like the equivalent of like let's just keep throwing shit against the wall and hope some of it sticks and i think for both of us none of it stuck yeah, it made me question my own intelligence. Uh, again, <laughs> this is an, another time in my notes where I physically wrote, am I dumb? Is this what smart people watch? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I had to qu like, am I missing? What am I missing? Because yeah. obviously some people love this movie. A lot of people love this movie. People smarter than me. So am I stupid? <laughs> I mean, we're both stupid. That goes without <laughs> saying. But I think it's still fair to say that this film sucks. Yeah, I don't know. I just felt like, uh, you know, when, when you start to realize that uh, you're the ugly friend and uh, <laughs> your hot friend invites you out everywhere, it's like, man, am I am I the intelligent version of the ugly friend adjacent? Is he going to love this? And then he just keeps tagging me along for my fucking uh, bullshit yeah. that I bring to the podcast. Dude, honestly, and on the same note, like, I feel really bad because, like, I don't know. It's like, 
I don't know, maybe like the guy that like wants to impress the girlfriend. So he like, you know, gives him like gives her like the Euro artsy film. But then it was like, oh, no, I gave him like the director's first film, not the second film. The first film's garbage. Like, I, you know, like I want these. Look, when we make this list, absolutely nothing goes on the list because we think the film is going to be garbage. Right. Like a lot of the films that are on this film we haven't seen. I think it does make for an interesting take. And so, you know, we get two great I've films read the list. Right I'm the looking bat. forward to all these movies. Yeah. But you're right. You're starting to feel a little bit like John Cusack and High Fidelity. There's no doubt about it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we get it. You like Bell and Sebastian. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, the other thing that was really weird about this film, by the way, because it continues there. So right after that, there's the scene where... Isaac is watching his wife bang this dude in a clearing. And like, I'm pretty certain the guy was a circus ringmaster based solely on his pencil mustache and bright long tail coat. <laughs> I don't know who this character is or why she's banging the ringleader of Barnum and Bailey circus, but like, he, I, I guess she's his, his, his wife, his original wife, ex-wife, whatever. And, and, or, and Isaac's like, he says, there's the guy that's showing Isaac and he says 10 years ago or something, you watched this from here. Do do you, do you remember that whole moment? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, you, you're getting deep into, uh, so deep into the movie <laughs> that I was like, really get, not like you were caring. just so dumb. I mean, I was watching it. This it. Point, I know right? what you're talking about. I paid attention. But uh, I, I was uh, trying, yeah, dude. I, I mean, I mean, even just for the sake of the kudos. podcast, I'm freaking trying over here, dude. Yeah. But like, no, you're a team player. God damn it, Bergman, you really fucked me on this one, dude. <laughs> like, come on, man. I really wanted to rep you on this one, and you just made me look like an oh, asshole. Man. So thanks a lot, Ingmar Bergman. Um, look here, positive note. Ready? I'm gonna spin this. The best part of this movie is that you didn't like it too. I really, really <laughs> nothing. Made me happier than when I checked in with you and uh, let you know I watched it so we could get on with it. And uh, you're like, yeah. And, and we just compared notes. And it was a uh, I'm really I do because if you like this and I didn't, honestly, I would start to start second guessing you know, my own, uh, <laughs> interest in films. I think maybe I don't need to be in a, a movie podcast. Maybe I need to have, be in an ice cream podcast. I love ice cream. You know? like, everyone loves ice cream. Let's start an ice cream podcast. <laughs> We'll pick flavors yeah. each week, talk about them, compare and contrast, the blueberry cheesecake, you know, what makes tiramisu, tiramisu. <laughs> Dude, if this movie was ice cream, it would be ice milk. Like, yeah, it's I, just so bland. It'd be and that locale, you know, Jenny's halo crap, you know, that they try to pass <laughs> off as real ice cream. This movie, <laughs> this movie is the preservative that other better ice creams use. Yeah, I I mean, look, do you uh, honest question? Do you think that uh, this movie was trying to do a lot of things before other movies did it? Do you think that maybe is why that it's we're like we've seen it so many times, and it was, uh, you know, it, it's the same song and dance for us. These things have all become tropes now. Like nah, for fuck example, that, the dream, no. se- like no. the dream sequences, uh, used for flashbacks as. Uh, tales of morality and like to teach him things. I feel like I've seen that a million times and I feel like that's so played out and I'm, I can't think of anything off the top of my head other than, you know, the movies I already mentioned, but, uh, uh, even Wayne's world with the diddaloo, diddaloo. I don't know. It just seemed like <laughs> another fucking dream sequence. Uh, I was so sick. So to use that as like a tool in the structure of your film and have your film win awards, 
made me want to give this film the middle finger. And uh, but maybe <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, hey, they didn't have Wayne's World in 1957, so maybe they <laughs> thought that was a good idea to have like dream sequences. They're like, dude, we'll do it in a dream, right? And I'm like, okay, in 1957, Ryan might be on board for that. Yeah, I, I don't know, dude. Honestly, like, I really tried to give this film the benefit of the doubt, and I just wasn't into it. <laughs> Found it boring I'm as hell, to, dude. Bro. Like, yeah, I, you know, I, I really, really I like it. There was a couple, like I said, main performance was great. Um, the, you know, the couple surreal sort of scenes were a little bit artsy, a little bit interesting. So, some decent photography at times. But, and then it just, like, the just in keeping with, the theme that's been established through this entire movie, like it just ends. Like it just ends. Like they get to yeah. the university and like Miss Agda's there and she's like, Hey, what's up? Like things starting. And so then like it starts and the kids are there and everyone's like, Hey, and then he like receives his diplomas and his rings and his hats and blah, blah, blah. And then he goes to sleep and he remembers being a kid with his family on a boat. And then he just smiles and the movie's over. And, you know, fuck this movie. Like, it was just ridiculous, just like man. Like, <laughs> just like life, you get excited about something, you're looking forward to it, you spend, de- you know, a decent amount of money to make it happen, and all it does is disappoint you. But, yeah. you know what? Uh, at the same time, I like feel... Just like wild strawberries, right? I just like wild say, strawberries. I feel like Ingmar Bergman would at least approve <laughs> of that message, right? <laughs> He's like, that's the yeah, point! That's know. the message right there! <laughs> This is what I've been trying to get everybody to. Life is a disappointment, just like my movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's a Swedish thing. Maybe it's lost in translation. I'm, I'm, you know, not culturally uh, uh, intelligent enough about it, but I just, uh, you know, I don't know. It wasn't my thing. Also, dude, can we acknowledge that this was like the longest ass 90 minute movie I've ever seen? Yes. Like, yes. 90 minutes going on 180, dude. Like, I think like Solaris moved quicker. Yeah. Somewhere after that. So um, they have a breaking of the bread, if you will, or, or some tea time or whatnot with their hitchhikers that they've taken up. And uh, it was around that time I lost my pen. I was watching this in my bed and my pen fell down the crack of my bed. And I spent about five to ten minutes trying to dig this thing out with my arm. <laughs> and uh, I have a note here that says that that's uh, just just lost pen, spent ten minutes getting it. Best part of movie. <laughs> <laughs> The best part of the movie was the 10 minutes I just tapped out and ignored it completely. Yeah, well, because it was an adventure, man. I, was, uh, <laughs> I had to fight for it. And there was a payoff. I got my pen back. So it was like Yay, a full circle right, thing. Yay, you're back. Woo! I had a character arc. You know, there was a character arc. <laughs> Things happened. <laughs> you like you like you I felt around. Something. There was nothing there. You were just like super crushed yeah. and all seemed lost. But then at the last minute, you touched Cap and then it was a success. <laughs> Triumph victory, Ryan, USA, USA, USA. (laughs) And it didn't just end because I carried on and soldiered on and here we are on the podcast. So uh, (laughs) all in, I'd say my, uh, my lost pen adventure was better than wild strawberries, 1957. (laughs) So yeah. So to everybody listening, uh, like I said, you're going to get more enjoyment out of searching your couch for a lost pen than you will by spending 90 minutes with Ingmar Bergman's my review. Wild Strawberries. I'm going to go I'm ahead and back up your review, buddy. So listen, man, we still got to post that. You know what? We still, we still got to do the thing here. So I'm still going to need three adjectives for this movie. Uh, 
Dry, stale, boring. <laughs> Three ways of saying exactly the same thing. Uh, that's fine. I think mine. Yep. I think I, I think well, I got the same. That's fine. They took ninety minutes to tell me the exact same thing over and over again. So <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> fuck that movie. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. That's kind of what I. As I was like going through and like just you know like like establishing the notes and kind of going through a run of show and stuff. It's like why do I feel like I'm putting more effort into a podcast about this movie than Bergman put into <laughs> making put into it making in the first it. place. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> Can't win them all. Yeah, I just wish it wasn't so highly respected. That's my thing. That's where I'm confused. Like, yeah, that's... hey, look, everybody. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm cranking out you know comedy gold every day, but <laughs> I, I uh, I'd be curious why people you know like this movie. So if you're out there and, and honestly this is a favorite of yours, or I don't mean to be disrespectful for anybody that uh, can't appreciate this as an artistic piece of cinema. If I'm missing something by being a troglodyte, please point <laughs> it out. Uh, my caveman brain could not wrap my head around it. Again. This may have something to do with the fact that it's uh, we've been doing several foreign films in a row, a lot of reading, a lot of digesting. You know, I got to pause to take notes sometimes. Uh, Not that there was any real intuitive reason to take notes on this fuckload of a movie, but hey, you know, I'm trying. So reach out and let me know, please, what I'm missing. Uh, I would be very curious. Or if you agree with us, uh, let's start a campaign to get this movie uh, removed from everything. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Dude. That was one of the things I was like, you know what? Like one of two things need to happen. Okay. The, the, the first thing you mentioned, which is that people reach out and they're like, Hey you guys are a bunch of idiots. Here's why this movie is awesome. Or what you need to do is we need to start spinning the narrative, dude. We need to actually like let people know that wild strawberries does not deserve its place on the top 250 list. Let's get it off there. It's a bad movie. I'm going to give you my three adjectives real quick. Uninspired. Be the change you want to see in the world, people. Be the, be the change out there. Evoke change. Let's do this. We could do it together. Yes, let's band together. We've got uninspired. We've got directionless. And a 90-minute slog, which is pretty much the perfect way to describe uh, this movie. So, yes, Ryan, absolutely. we're going to give this a formal rating. Great rating what you got. Uh, I'm giving this a solid D minus. D minus, barely graduating. Well, I think that kind of puts yeah. it on the same on the same. So, uh, just not- like Doctor Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I am. A, I'm not going to give it one star. I'm going to give it one and a half out of five stars because this movie sucks. Both of us agree. So once again, if we're missing something. Reach out at, Os- at Esoterica Cinema on Twitter, Esoterica Cinema at gmail.com. Let us know why we suck and why this movie's awesome. We're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break, and we will be back with our comparison feature and drawing next week's shows. Stay tuned. Hey, Mom and Dad. So, you want to hear more about Solaris Space Station Resort and Hotel? Well, you've come to the right place. Why, your ears won't believe all the magical wonders we have in store for you here on Solaris. You start off at your father's house so lush, green, and pristine. Then blast off to a space station that's anything but clean. You're greeted by a little person and a scientist. That's when you get the feeling this decision wasn't best. You go to bed, then wake up, and hey, look, it's your ex-wife. She remembers very little except that old marital strife. 
So quickly she begins to cling, you've got to save some face. So force her in a rocket ship and blast that chick to space. Solaris is now acting up and trouble is in brew. It's up to you to save Earth and the remnants of your crew. You wrap up your emotions in an encephalogram. But it turns out the joke's on you, you're on Solaris land. Book your stay at Solaris Resort and Hotel today. Operators may be standing by, but only if you perceive them to be. All right, Ryan. So at the end of the day, you know, a little disappointing uh, this episode. I uh, can't say that we both, you know, love the films. I do think Solaris is interesting. And here's the thing. At the end of the day, I am happy to have seen it. And I'm, I'm the more that I do think about it, the more I could see a future where, again, you know, a few years down the road, maybe going back and revisiting that film and actually being able to appreciate it. Um, I just, you know, again, I just, I wish it really hadn't focused so much on that just psychic projection of that ex-wife. And actually the, the interesting thing too, is that the book that it was based on, cause it was based on a book by a Russian author and a famous science fiction Russian author by the name of Stanislaw Len or something like that. And, uh, yeah, he hated the film, which is funny because he co-wrote it with Tarkovsky, or he at least like supervised the, the 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 writing of it with him. And I guess Tarkov he probably just got played. Tarkovsky was just like, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, no, I could totally do that, I could totally do that. And just went back and did whatever <laughs> the hell he wanted, right? Um, it totally seems like he'd be one of those guys. So, but anyways, as we do in this program, we basically like to end every episode by taking two very different films. And comparing them to one another. So, Ryan, go ahead and kick off our comparison feature. What you got? Well, both these movies kind of deal with characters that are uh, haunted by their past and are taken through their past in various ways or had a mirror held up to them uh, so that they could go through and learn and grow and hopefully come out of the other side changed. Um, I think it was more effectively done in Solaris. Uh, It's not that... um, our Dr. Kelvin was changed so much, but uh, it was a better journey, and it had a better resolution, uh, had a cool twist at the end. Um, so I thought that the whole process of going through the motions, albeit uh, Solaris was stalled out for quite a while, like you said, with his connection with his ex-wife, um, I think that that was more gratifying to me than The Wild Strawberries, where time and time again throughout that film, he had that mirror held up uh, to his soul or to his past or through dream sequences or memories or what have you, the Mm -hmm. same way that Solaris did, you know, or a similar way that Solaris did, but none of it had any impact on our main character. Uh, There was never a time when I was rooting for anybody or did I see anything that really needed to be drastically changed, like we had said. So I thought, actually, you know, it's funny. When you pitch this, I've said this before, but when you pitch this idea to me that we're going to have a a comparative section, um, you know, your first instinct is how are you going to compare some of these films? And what I'm finding time and time again is actually, you know, uh, screenwriters and filmmakers and storytellers in general uh, do find similar, uh, you know, similar stories or through lines for their characters that they tell in various different ways, whether it's on an alien planet or on a road trip movie to go get your college degree. Um, you know, we're still all trying to better ourselves and we still uh, look to our past to try to uh, 
uh, challenge our future selves and, and so on and uh, plot our course. So I think this kind of had some of the similar elements of that uh, haunted by your past. And, and this is why you are the way you are now. And, and uh, how do I change that? Do mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, sometimes it's uh, as simple as just having a dream sequence. And sometimes you got to shoot your ex-wife out of a rocket ship. You know, that's just <laughs> what you got to do. <laughs> Absolutely, buddy. Yeah. Uh, I actually, yeah, I mean, I completely 100% agree. I don't really have too much to add to that specifically because I, that was pretty much the response that I had, just both of these films being meditative examinations on life with these sort of slow paces and languishing sensibilities. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of questioning the nature of decision-making and modalities of thought that may have brought the protagonist to this point of time in their lives where they're sort of looking back and seeing what they've done and what could have been, et cetera, et cetera, you know, judging themselves, their decisions, what have you. So definitely agree with you there. I also think this is a film, uh, rather both of these are films that fell short of their artistic ambitions, you know, and I don't say that to, you know, like talk shit about anybody yeah, or anything like that. But I think that, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that both of these films set out to do something that it didn't quite achieve. I think that Solaris at least was able to achieve elements of what it wanted to do. But even Tarkovsky yep, yep. himself has admitted that, you know, he saw something or he saw Solaris as something of, of a, uh, an artistic failure himself. And interesting. Yeah, and you mean uh, the seven-minute drive through uh, <laughs> Okinawa, Japan? Was it? <laughs> yeah, that, he's that like, was. He's like, I don't know why I put the seven minutes of highway sequence in there. That should have been enough. <laughs> they didn't like that. What yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, maybe five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to see that scene put to the, the the theme song to Hill Street Blues. I think it would be so... I'm going to do that. I'm going to edit that for you. I'm going to send that over to you. Like I said, dude, get some Benny Hill. But yeah, so I do think that both of them kind of left some stuff on the table with regards to their respective projects. Um, and, then, and then also, you know, kind of dovetailing from your earlier point, you know, I do think both films explore ultimately what it is to be human, though I think that both of them do so in different ways. I think that Solaris is maybe on a quite literal level asking, you know, what makes a being human, whereas Wild Strawberries kind of asks, you know, what sort of behaviors make us human and, you know, what is what is considered, you know, cold and impersonal and what is considered, you know, warm. and Because um, there's just there's a lot of judgment on 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 cruelty on coldness uh, maybe that was ingmar bergman's commentary on himself you know maybe it's one of the one i don't of those know things. man um but like i said i just feel like uh at the end of the day you know having to draw these comparisons that um they they did explore the essence of humanity in their respective ways both failed solaris succeed on some levels so Pretty much in Solaris, I, uh, Doctor in Solaris, Doctor Kelvin had to ask, "Does my wife poop?" But in Wild <laughs> Strawberries, we learn this movie is poop. <laughs> Once again, Ryan bringing it back to poop, <laughs> like he does. Yep. Well, I, I think that's a, I think that's an appropriate breakdown. I think that I just nailed it. You're welcome. Definitely. Everybody. Yeah. No, make, making the world a better place, and uh, all to all the listeners, you're welcome <laughs> as well. So. All right, man. We got to get you some good films here, buddy. I'm feeling good about this week. Yeah. It's time to get pivot us. In. Get us. 
This is for the viewers. This isn't for me. Uh, you know, <laughs> we need to get collective, collectively, the listeners, excuse me, uh, this isn't a visual medium. Uh, we need to get the uh, listeners some good movies. Let's do this. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, as we always do each and every episode, we're going to go ahead and use our random number generator. We have 156 movies, so I think I only added one, which is pretty good. Uh, like I said, really trying to uh, keep it down there. Um, in the future, we are going to try to see if any listeners maybe want to send us suggestions. So as we've said before, if you would like to suggest any films for this list, films you think that fit within the criteria, and movies that maybe you want to bring some more attention to, feel free to send us some suggestions, and we can go ahead and consider putting them on there. If we get you know, a whole bunch and the list is just getting unwieldy. Maybe we'll do some sort of like, you know, drawing contest. I don't know what that looks like yet, but, uh, yeah, again, for our five listeners that, uh, want to go ahead and send us some suggestions, let's go ahead and see if we can make some time on here. So this is a really varied list, Ryan, uh, over here, you know, I'm looking at some films. It's like, we've got a assault on precinct 13, the John Carpenter movie. So obviously that's not going to be, you know, a super slow film, um, you know, I've got uh, Spike Lee's Black Klansman on here, which everyone assures me is awesome. Um, dude, we've got like, I mean, I've got Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, because it's a, wow, just, really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, and and uh, Cassandra Peterson is super funny. Um, so, and I've just really never been exposed to Elvira, but a lot of people, it has a really good reputation. Um, you know, we've got some, yeah, she was big when, uh, when I was a kid. So that was, that's big time Absolutely, up all night and all that business. Yeah, man. And I mean, we've got some, you know, some, uh, some campy stuff on here. I'm looking at flash Gordon. I'm looking at plan nine from outer space. So you never know what kind of film we're going to get here. Let's go ahead and give it a roll of the dice. Shall we? Yep. Let's do it. All right, man. So coming over here, generating a random number one through 56 and uh one one through 156 one through 156 yeah and uh all right so this is a movie i don't know if this was yours or mine don't recognize it at all high and low no i don't recognize that at all all right hold on we're gonna go ahead and uh check this look this up real quick so we can see yeah, I'm really curious who added this. <laughs> Maybe we've got uh, listener submissions already. We just didn't know it. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Let's see what we got here. Do to do. If we need to, by the I way. Low from 1963. Okay. All right. Oh, so this yeah, is this... this is an Akira Kurosawa movie. It's a little bit of a long okay. one, but it's Toshiro Mifune. I believe that's how you say it. Longtime Kurosawa uh, collaborator. Collaborator. Yeah, yep, described yep. on Google as a wealthy industrialist whose family becomes the target of a ruthless kidnapper in his exemplary film noir. So I'm in. All Let's right. do it. Yeah, dude. Crime drama. More reading. And look, dude, I mean, uh, I, I don't think I've seen a bad Kurosawa film. They are a little bit slower, but at least it should be good, man. Um, and yeah, you know, this is... I mean, this, this is exactly the type of film that we want to put on here, right? Like something by right. a very esteemed filmmaker, but that you or I didn't even know by rep, by name, right? Um, but the yeah. moment we find out it's yeah. Kurosawa, it's like, oh shit, yeah, we're in, dude, for sure. All right, what else you got? 
All right, man. So let's see. Let's, dude. I hope we just get some really random ass genre film or something super wacky or something to just contrast this really serious Kurosawa film. So let's see what we come up with here. All right, man. So we have got eighty nine. Huh. All right. Well, you know, Ryan, we got another long artsy film, and it seems like this is just the films that are coming up. But uh, this is a really good one. This is actually a film from my favorite director, one of the few that I haven't seen, Paths of Glory. Okay. Have you seen it? No. I have not either. And 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 where does Stanley Kubrick rank among your favorite uh, filmmakers? Uh, so here's the thing with Stanley Kubrick, you know, I just don't think that his library is, I mean, the, dude, his hits are slammed. I mean, his hits are, are, are grand slams every single time. His, his big movies are the best. And I really, really do appreciate, uh, you know, what he's really, really well known for. Um, I have not seen Barry Lyndon. I have not seen, uh, Paths of Glory. So my, I guess my, I'm saying like I've only seen his famous stuff, so I don't really feel I, I love his his work. I mean, obviously, how do you not herald him as one of the greats? But uh, I, I'm that's again, this is why I do this podcast. I love this uh, that I get to kind of peel back the layers a bit and get to things like Paths of Glory that I probably should have seen. Um, you know, you know, I've never even seen Spartacus. Yeah, you know what? Uh, so unlike you, uh, I'll go out and say that you know, as far as a pure director, not you know, not taking into account like writer, director, auteurs, but just pure directors, Stanley Kubrick is arguably my favorite, and I think wow, there okay. are yeah, and I think there's maybe two or three of his films that I haven't seen, and that's going to be Paths of Glory, it's going to be Barry Lyndon, and then it's going to be uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Spartacus. Yeah, and then Spartacus. So those are the three that I haven't seen. Wow, you haven't seen those three either. Okay, yeah. cool. Then I don't feel like such a moron. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, so... <laughs> well, I so, figured everybody's seen Spartacus. I just, that's one of those ones. You know, everybody's got their list. Of, you and I talk about this all the time. Everybody's got their list of movies where you mention you haven't seen it and someone's like, whoa, you haven't seen that? And I feel like Spartacus is one of mine. Uh, I have four or five others that I'm embarrassed about. And, uh, you know, I hope that I, we get to them soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Ryan, you will at least be happy to know that uh, while uh, High and Low does clock in at about two and a half hours, Paths of Glory is uh, an hour and a half. Um, so uh, it does look like it's, it's in English, a, right? Huh? It's in English, right? It's not subtitled. Yeah, no, no, no. It's in English and it's uh, it starts good old Kirk Douglas, man. Yeah, Kirk Douglas. Let's yeah, do this. Yeah, yeah. By the way, to anybody listening, uh, it does. Uh, we haven't verified this, but uh, Google is telling me that Paths of Glory is available for free on Tubi. Um, and then it looks like uh, you just have to pay on like Amazon or iTunes for high and low. So um, yeah, if you want to be prepared for the next episode of the program, once again, we're gonna go ahead and be looking at Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. And Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. So look, Ryan. If nothing else, dude, th this is like this is next next episode is gonna be like the heavy hitters episode, okay? Because we're looking at a Kurosawa yeah. film and a Stanley Kubrick film, two directors that arguably rank into the all-time top five or ten of most any serious cinephiles top directors of all time list, right? So sure, really right. looking forward to this batch of films. 
again, was hoping that we might get some, you know, sort of genre films to just kind of switch it up a little bit because um, we have been looking at a lot of sort of, you know, highly regarded and more sophisticated artistic sort of films or at least movies that try to be anyway, looking at you, Wild Strawberries. Um, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> as we mentioned before, uh, connect with us. You know, we really do want to hear what you have to say about the films that we look at, about our opinions on the films, what films you think we should be looking at that may be good for the list. You can reach us on Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. You can reach out to us via email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. Ryan, it's been a lot of fun talking these films with you. Really hope that next episode and these next batch of films rank a little higher for us because, man, we need some victories here. It's all right, man. We'll get there. This is our path to glory, my friend. We'll make it. <laughs> it's we got to go through the highs and the lows. Oh, dude, that's closing the show out with a pun. That's why we pay you the biggest bucks, uh, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. All right, Jason, I'm going to go poop. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales, bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement, and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.